This episode of the Major Issues Podcast is brought to you by Comic Book Click at tpublic.com. Visit tpublic.com slash user slash comic book click to get exclusive one-of-a-kind merchandise including shirts, stickers, and phone cases all designed by us. Get your hands on the latest and greatest in comic book merchandise by going to tpublic.com slash user slash comic book click. And remember, you, yes you, are worthy. out there in comic book land my name is george serrano aka the don and if you're listening to this you could only be here for one reason and that's a brand new episode of the major issues podcast presented by comicbookclick.com and as always i'm never alone sir please introduce yourself i am dan the comic book man dan the comic book man is here in studio and we are here to talk about a book underneath the vertical comics imprint the more adult the more uh dark and gritty for lack of better words, because they always use that to describe, right, the more mature content that comes out. is always dark and gritty. Uh, but a more realistic and in some ways tragic view um, on the life of an alcoholic by covering The Alcoholic, <laughs> written by Jonathan Ames. Am I saying that right? Yep, Jonathan Ames. And illustrated by Dean Haspel. Haspiel? Haspiel. Haspiel, I'm guessing? Yes. So... Dan, the comic man, has been adamant about covering this book. Um, it's one of the books that you read independently of this podcast, independently of this group. Well, I read this book when it was actually still out. Like, it, it's one full uh, trade paperback, but this book came out in 2008. Yeah. I, I first read this book in 2010. Okay. This was the, I picked it up when I was around, had to have been like 16 years old. And was it I a recommendation? Was um, it no, I, I just... How does it land in a in a young teenager's hands? What happened was is um I have this uh comic mentor, my guidance counselor from high school. Okay. And he would take all of the uh, the good students, like he'll go around to class, see who has like nineties and up, who's been doing good in class, and he'll take them to a comic book store he grew up going to, Grasshopper yeah. Comics, which I don't think is around anymore. It's in Long Island. Okay. And um, yeah, if you had your own money, if you didn't have money, he'll buy it for you. And me, I was one of the people that he trusted to be mature enough to not like go around and show everybody hey look at this book with this book like he trusted me enough to be that way so yeah i saw this book it was 20 bucks i had 20 bucks and what caught me was just the cover i guess i skimmed through it a little bit as a 16 year old kid you know you see graphic depictions like breasts and and semen and teenagers drinking so it just i don't know it just attracted it didn't, it didn't look like superman and batman it was definitely something that i knew at that time i was going to get into Okay. And it was, but this wasn't like a cautionary tale. I didn't read this book like, you know, idolizing it. To be honest with you, I don't really, re- reading it now, I must have forgotten everything about this book except just the fact of it's a, a graphic novel memoir yeah. about a aging alcoholic writer. I think, I think also, you know, contextually things change as you get older, right? Like certain things that you wouldn't have been privy to. Like I talk about like the, the, the more adult jokes in kid in kids' movies. Yeah. Like now if we go and comb through Disney we probably find a lot more jokes than oh, there's we were a not lot. privy to in, when we were younger. In Rugrats. I was watching Rugrats and Rugrats in Paris like three nights ago, mm-hmm. laughing my head off. But then I realized, wait a minute. These are sex jokes yeah. made by babies. Like, yep. this is weird. <laughs> yeah. And so, 
Um, I guess we Vertigo is always kind of handled more, you know, uh, darker, more adult, more mature, you know, content. That's where you know we uh, Hellblazer and Watchmen. Um, I was just thinking of freaking, but anyway. Do you in reading it now? A, a good ten years after the fact, after when you first read it, do you feel the same way about the book as you did initially? <sighs> See, this is the problem. Reading this book, I forgot everything that was about it. So I'm going along and having my own flashbacks of my childhood, sneaking out with my best friend every weekend and going and going drunk, and getting drunk, and my yeah. parents not knowing, having these weird, confusing sexual experiences with girls that lasted up to two seconds because I'm still young and not knowing. Like, literally reading this book, I had to stop every few minutes, every few pages, and put it down and just cover my eyes because I'm like, holy crap, I did, I went through this. I went. Were through these concepts through. a bit more foreign when you were younger? Uh, it had, it had to have been. I, I, I don't think I digested this the way an adult or the way anybody would digest anything. I think I was just reading it just to say I read it. Okay. It, it wasn't one of those things that I read and understood. Right. And now that I'm reading it, I'm looking and I'm like, I'm reading all these words and like, it's resonating to me in, in every which way. Like there's a part where, uh, some guy that's in rehab says, you know, you got to put down the drugs and the alcohol now, because if you don't, you're going to destroy yourself. Yeah. And those are things that were speaking to me when I was at dark places in my life. Yeah. So now it's just like, this is a cautionary tale, you know, especially since most of this book, he's illustrating as anywhere from 15 to 24. So anywhere from 15 to 24, you have to look at it as like, damn, this was a young kid going through it. Like going through it. How old is he when the book is over? Uh, he's about 36, 37. Okay. Because the book ends at around 2002. Roughly, yeah. Yeah. It's from like, it's, it's like depicted from like 79 to like 2002. Yeah. So it's just that whole like 40 year span or like 30 year span. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't read like a traditional comic in the sense that, um, there's no goal, you know, like there's no, there's no real antagonist unless you want to call the protagonist the antagonist or alcohol is or alcohol in general. Um, uh, but it was, it was definitely an interesting read. Um, I would recommend it for those who have never, I mean, I recommend it for everybody. I think all, I think that it's important to read all sorts of comic books and that's exactly what I'm trying to oh, do. There's something for forward. everybody. Someone's going to pick this up and they're not going to look at it as, Oh my God, this is my life. This is a cautionary tale. They're just going to look at it as like, wow, that was a really digestible story. And I think it's really vulnerable. I think it's very honest. Um, there's a lot of scatological humor in here that you'd have to understand. There's also a lot of like in, in cases like this, usually the protagonist is a bit more glamorous, but from what I hear, this is almost autobi autobiographical. Everything that I've looked up was that this is basically a comic book memoir. Right. And and if that's the case, then it, it takes a lot of confidence or maybe even lack thereof, maybe self-deprivation. De you know, um, maybe he finally got sober and was able to write this book. Because this, be this book came out six years after its story ends. So the story ends in 2002. It gets released in 2008. Yeah. I was yeah, I was wondering if it was, if it was a level of self self deprecation that he was able to look at back at the story and be like, "Wow, I really should have." Well, there's you know? also a scene. There's a scene in here where he's reading not a part a part of his book, but a passage of his own personal short story yeah. about him shitting his pants in France. Right, right. So if and if that is true that he really did do that in real life, then I guess he is more able to look back at those moments like I was bad. 
but I can learn from it. I can be better. Yes. Did you know much about Jonathan Ames going forward before you read this book? I knew nothing about him, and everything I had learned after was just candy for me. <laughs> what did you learn about him? Uh, he, he did a show called Bored to Death on HBO, and it was starring um, Jason Schwartzman. But it was a Jonathan Ames like work. Like if you've read The Alcohol, I read, I watched a couple, of, I think a season of Bored to Death after reading The Alcoholic. I'm like, oh my god, this is just basically an adaptation. Okay. So I started to learn more about him afterwards. But apparently, he's been around since like the 90s. Heavily working, right? Yeah, he's been actually like an author. He's been on uh, Late Night with David Letterman. That's big. That that is big. I didn't even know that. A little quick biography about him, though. Jonathan Ames became known as a uh, a rancator, rancator? How do you pronounce that? I think that is rancator. Rancator in New York following his 1999 one-man show, Oedipussy. Oh, my God. And continues to perform frequently with New York-based one storytelling organization, The Moth. As he has been a guest on David Letterman, on the late-night show with David Letterman several times and played the lead role in the 2001 IFC film, The Girl Under the Waves. That's... That's stuff that I didn't even know. Yeah. An on-screen experiment in, in – oh, the movie is an on-screen experiment in improvisational acting. So the whole movie is basically improv, if I'm understanding it correctly. The whole movie is basically improv. Okay. So this guy is really creative in a sense. If he's mm-hmm. the one putting this stuff on – it says he was – yeah, he had the lead role. Showtime Commission aims to develop a pilot based on his writings titled What's Not to Love? Question mark. Ames starred as himself, but was not but it was not developed into a series, instead of airing as a one time special in the winter of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, basically before his book came out. Okay. Ames also appears in the great Buck Howard. I didn't even know that. Which that makes a sense that makes a lot of sense that he would be doing all these um things for his career, you know, um, but also on the side writing this, like, transparent memoir that yeah. comes out in 2008. And it's crazy how he seems to always be playing himself. It's like a, it's like Hunter S. Thompson-esque in a way. Because oh, yeah. Hunter S. Thompson, his writing was always basically an autobiography. just had to, like, smudge a few facts so he doesn't get arrested. Right. Because I heard Fearing and Loathing Las Vegas was actually him going to Vegas with an imaginary friend with a, soup, with a trunk full of drugs. So we have this. I don't know. Uh, so a rancator is a person who tells anct- anecdotes in a skillful and amusing way. And it's... Raconteur. Rancator. Raconteur. Raconteur. <laughs> so, so I was basically right. Yeah, so somebody who tells uh, stories in an amusing way. Ames created the HBO series Bored to Death, which starred Jason Schwartzman as a struggling Brooklyn novelist named Jonathan Ames, who moonlights <laughs> as an unlicensed private detective, which a lot of Jonathan... Isn't that from the book? Doesn't yeah? Doesn't he write a story of like a short, like crime series? Yeah, Max something. Uh, hold on, I have yeah, yeah. His mother's name. It's like his mother, Max Ingrid, or something like that. I think it was like his his yeah. It I think it was like his, his, mother's his mother's last name. It was his mother's name and his father's name. He switched them. Huh. Yeah. So he's been doing stuff like that for a while. Uh, the show debuted in September twentieth of two thousand nine. He also starred. He also started to guest star as. Irwin, Max Irwin, I think that was. Ah, yes, that I think that sense. was his name, Max Irwin. He started. He guest starred as Irwin in the second season, appearing fully nude in one scene. In December 20, 2011, it was reported that Bored to Death was canceled by HBO after airing its third season, which is kind of sad. 
The, yeah. film, the film adaptation of Ames' novel, The Extra Man, starring Kevin Kline, John C. Riley, Katie Holmes, and Paul Dano, was released in 2010. The film adaptation, this I didn't know, and I've been wanting to see this movie for a while. I didn't know this is a Jonathan Ames adaptation. Mm-hmm. You Were Never Really Here, starring Joaquin oh, Phoenix. Oh, I saw, I saw that. That was pretty interesting. You saw that movie? That's I didn't John- see the movie. Oh, you- no, I'm saying I saw that fact, and I thought it was pretty interesting. That I just learned this today. This is crazy. This is now what's going to make me want to see this movie. And originally, when I was reading that title, You Were Never Really Here, initially in my head, I thought it was... um. That movie that Joaquin Phoenix did, where he like quit acting to be like a rapper, and he has fit, he had like this big nasty beard. It was with Casey Affleck. That's originally what I thought the movie was. Yeah, the author produced the novel based on his book, which was directed by Lane Ramsey. It premiered at the seven at the seventieth Cannes Film Festival, where Ramsey won an award for best screenplay, and Joaquin won an award for best act. Man, Joaquin Phoenix has been winning a best award for best. Actors I'm actually forever. surprised you've never seen that movie. That movie seems right up your alley. It you know it's always been on my queue, and I've never like gotten what, the chance. How, to sit. What how and what gets pushed up in front of it? Uh, usually shows that I have to finish. Like usually things that are like that like. I guess, in a sense, things that I have just for enjoyability, I okay. push it down. Things that I know I have to watch, I push up. Okay. So, like, everything that I want to watch has been on the back burner for Better Call Saul because I want to finish Better Call Saul before the 25th. Because okay. I want to be able to watch the series every Sunday. It's coming up. Yeah, man. It's coming up. Ames also starred in the, in the HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm in the season 8 episode Car Periscope, briefly playing a role as Larry David's business manager. In 2015, Ames teamed up with Patrick Stewart and Seth MacFarlane to create Blunt Talk, which aired on Stars Network for two seasons. His performance, for his performance in the starring role, Patrick Stewart was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Television and TV Series, Musical, or Comedy, and a Critics' Choice TV Award for Best Actor in a Comedy Series. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Ames has had a very successful life, if, I, if I'm seeing this correctly. He's done movies, TV shows. He has, but he seems to he seems to be like under the radar in a sense. No, his material seems to kind of be the same, and not in a bad way. But it just seems like he doesn't mind delving into the mind of somebody who may not be a hundred percent in control of their own faculties, which I guess maybe speaks to the alcoholism aspect of it. Um, But yeah, you know. I I'm just it, I'm really wondering what kind of man makes himself the main character when you know the main character is going to be flawed. I think that's is that what somebody who does now. But is that somebody? I'm I'm wondering if you're supposed to ultimately, um, like I wonder if he's using it to wipe away the things that he's done, or if he's using it to bring a light to the things that he's done. And it could be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I would I would like to hope like in reading towards the end like that last monologue that he had at the end yeah that he's not doing that was it to the most to... incense he sounded right the entire book there's several points and we'll get to them as we go where I feel like he hammered home what the issue was but then did nothing to solve the issue and I think that's a lot of of uh, where substance abuse finds its home it finds its home when we want to retreat and. We don't necessarily want to take the deep looks in ourselves and ask the questions of, you know, how did I end up here? Can I ever get out of here? And here being, you know, certain moods or certain uh, dispositions. Well, everything you need to know about this book, honestly, is in the back page, like the back cover. Yeah. You know, like everybody always reads the back cover for that quick thing. Well, 
the back cover here is is great because it, in big bold writing, in the proud tradition of drunken writers everywhere. Yeah. Then it goes on to have a little paragraph. Jonathan Ames is a boozed up, coked out, sexually confused, hopelessly romantic, and of course, entirely fictional novelist who bears only a coincidental resemblance to real life writer Jonathan Ames, critically acclaimed author of Wake Up, Sir, The Extra Man, and What's Not to Love. For the fictional Jonathan, writing and drinking come easy. The hard parts of life are love and hope. From a touching relationship between Jonathan and his great and his aging great aunt, to an inebriated evening with an amorous, amorous octogenarian dwarf, <laughs> to the devastation aftermath, the devastating aftermath of 9/11, Ames's first original graphic novel with gritty, poignant art by Dean Haspel, uh, he's done The Quitter, tells a story. At once hilarious, excruciating, bizarre, and universal about how our lives fall to pieces and the enduring human struggle to put things back together again. That, I think, is great. No, After reading this book twice, I think that it is a perfect way to describe this book. Um. So you, do you want to just go, I guess, uh, plot by plot, just stopping to... I guess, yeah, I brought up a little... um. Just a little uh, run, not a review in a sense. I wrote like a little a recap, 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 just to yeah. just to get us a um, a timeline. Yes, and everything else we can just go along because I know it's fresh for you. It's definitely fresh for me. I finished it today. Yeah, I know that. Um, for the most part, the book starts off roughly in what two thousand two. Uh, the book starts off in uh two thousand one before nine eleven. This was before nine eleven. Oh, that's when he saw the the kissing, and then yeah, this post. is when he saw the kissing of the thing, okay. and then then everything else that. We get after is that it's like one of those. Um, I bet you're wondering how I ended up in this very position. much, yeah, very it's, much it's, so. It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the book starts with Jonathan waking up from being blackout drunk in a car with an old dwarf lady and not remembering how he got there, and starts narrating how he became an alcoholic, having his first drink at 15 and and continuing to. I man, my writing is terrible, and <laughs> continuing to drink every weekend with his best friend Sal. After after a botched sex, sexual experience with his best friend, Sal ended his friendship with Jonathan, causing him to become depressed and questioning his value as a person. He would even go so far as to purposely crashing his car for Sal's attention. I had to this, stop there. Yeah, this whole little... Because he was 15 when he started drinking, and this whole thing with Sal was, like a, I think, illustrated about only happened around roughly a year-ish. Like 15 so, to 16. I think that this thing with Sal, this incident... Um, lends itself to a lot of the trauma that he faces moving forward because I think that the the main issue with Sal is that they were very intensely close, it, uh, you know, uh, botched sexual experience aside. Um, that sexual experience may have made them closer, depending on who you want to ask. Um, but for him to just disappear, um, I think then Jonathan gets used to the idea that people close to you can then just disappear. Well, I mean, look and, how many people that were close to him that he lost. Right. But I think you start to look at it in a way like the odds are against you as opposed to everyone having the same odds. Because I'm going to lose people in my life. You're yeah. going to lose people in you your life. Lose, Everybody's yeah, going to lose people in their lives. Unless you literally have not one, literally not one person. Yeah, you're, And you're a drifter yeah. alone in the world. You're going to lose somebody. Right. And the idea that you can go through life without losing anybody is impossible. Um, and I think that uh, Sal leaving without an explanation, eventually he, have, he got his explanation. But he doesn't ever get closure on that to the that's point what, that, that. That's these relationships. He doesn't get closure. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's what this whole story is about is I personally, the way I take it is his alcoholism, his drug abuse comes from lack of closure to those he got too comfortable with. Yeah. You know, he was drinking every weekend, even though he was getting sick. Like this was something that was physically making him ill, making him not feel well. And he would still take it upon himself to do these things. Um, I remember hearing that uh, most young drinkers, most underage drinkers um, already know what brands, <laughs> you know, they should uh, familiarize themselves with or they should try. Um, no underage person who drinks for the first time doesn't know brands. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, early in our pop culture history. We've we've taken on alcohol for various different reasons, and alcohol has become shorthand for various different things. Um, in comparison to now, where I feel like we have a little bit more of a honest look at alcohol. Um, back in the day, and even now, alcohol symbolizes success. You only have a drink when you've done something right, right? Every time you celebrate, <laughs> celebrate a romantic night with your loved one, you drink wine. All business, all high-powered businessmen are depicted as having decanters by their tables full of uh, Mad men. whiskeys and uh, scotches and cognacs. Um, uh, Dos Equis is going to have an interesting adventure with that. Corona is going to put you by the beach. Um, you Find know, your beach, yeah, yeah, like, you know, uh, you know, Coors Light, the Silver Bullet, ride the Bullet Train, all that. Yeah, um, and so like all this, all this stuff has been ingrained in us for so long. I would, and I'm, I'm I don't mean to. Uh, a lot of this conversation is going to be off the cuff, of course. But I, I believe that um, our alcohol identity or whatever alcoholic identity you want to call it, like that. It's very similar to our sexual identity in the sense that we don't really know. And we just are jumping to the conclusions based off the what we heard <laughs> tangible and trying to make it work. I used to tell people, and don't be offended, that if your favorite drink is Hennessy, odds are you don't know how to order a drink at a bar. <laughs> like you don't know the name of a drink. Yeah. Because you're drinking Hennessy because... You knew people who drank Hennessy. This was and just they drank the, Hennessy yeah. because they knew people who drank Hennessy. But they you go they go go to a bar and they don't know they get freeze. It's the pot smokers that only grew up smoking blunts that don't know about raw papers and Marley's or bongs and or, or any or any of that hit. kind of stuff. I'm I've met smokers that have been smoking since they were young. You'll put a bowl in front of their hands and they're like looking at it as if it's this new age technology. Like a, a, alien piece of alien tech. Yeah, it's a piece of alien tech to them. So I I, I can totally see what you mean by if you only drink Hennessy, you don't you don't know how to order a drink at a bar. Um, I I find a lot of you know people I grew up with and stuff like that. Like we didn't really. Why did we drink? We drank to kind of be rebellious. It felt kind of weird. It felt kind of you felt ad- grown. You it felt also adult. felt adult. Yeah, it also felt adult. This is what adults do, and this is what I'm gonna want to do. And and not only that, from early on, you're you're told phrases like lightweight. You know, yeah, stuff like, like oh, that. Oh, you're a lightweight, and then you, you know, want, and you so feel... all of a sudden you want to you want to be able to have your body withstand more poison than the person next to you. Ultimately, that's peer what that pressure. comes down. It's peer pressure, that's what it yeah. comes down to. But the weird things that we valued at that time, and the weird things that made quote unquote made us feel adult or made us feel older or more responsible or whatever. Um, you talked about sneaking out and drinking. Why would it, why didn't you tell your parents just out of fear in, in general of being in trouble? Well, originally. I would. I was always do, everything I did was what how it was depicted. What Jonathan did in the book, I did it out of out of acting out, looking for attention. I would come home purposely drunk, and my parents would just think I'm tired. 
You know, I would, I, I would, I would come home purposely high, not smelling like it, but I would just come home purposely high, waiting to get caught, so I can, you know, and it, it's not like my problem is the same with his problem. It was, it's an ego thing for me. I was, I didn't grow up in a in a broken home. Yeah. I didn't grow up with parents that didn't love me. My parents were divorced, but my both my parents gave me all the love that they needed, and that's what he realized too that. You know, it it it's both your parents and not your parents' fault. It's either right. the like my father. My father was a very like conservative man. My mother was a very religious woman. So things that I did wasn't in their viewpoints. Okay. So I would act out, and I yeah I was going out drinking every weekend with best friends, act acting out. Right. But I did. I wasn't getting sloppy till I got older. When I was sixteen. A couple of beers and a couple of shots, I'm I'm good. Right. You know, I, I feel the spin. I don't want to drink anymore because I, I personally don't like throwing up. It doesn't right. matter what drunk, normal, I hate throwing up. It hurts me. My eyes water. It wasn't until I started getting 19, 20. Now I'm buying a pack, a six pack because I know the guy at the store that will sell it to me. Right. Go to a party, drink more beer. Hey, let's do shots. Do more shots. Hey, let's eat Papa John's. And then I started getting myself sick. All right. Because of the Papa John's. I mean, <laughs> it was definitely the Papa John's that got me sick. But uh, let's get into co- to, uh, Jonathan's college years. In 19- well, how do you feel about the whole sexual experience thing? How do you feel about the whole, is Jonathan gay? Is that something that he should be looking no, forward to? Be I think interested the, in? Any of that kind of stuff? I think they're, because I, I know it's later in there. But when they when he when he, when he the acts the therapist, the psychiatrist was the problem. And I think it's true. I think it's not about being attracted to men and being gay. It's just... You're looking for he's looking for a friendship, and if he thinks uh, a friendship is being being having sex with another guy to fill that void of Sal, that's just how it's gonna go. Now maybe, maybe you know when you're young, you you don't know fully yet. I didn't know what I like what sexual nature that I wanted when I was fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, my problem was I saw guys and girls that were good looking, right, and it confuses you. So someone that he grew up with. That's all he knows. Maybe it was just love do, knows no gender. Do you to be think? With you. Do you think Sal knew that he was gay at the time of what he did? Yeah. And does that then make it right or wrong? It's it's so because I know we're all we're all you know exploring our sexualities at, at different points, at different times, at different ages. And I'm not trying to say right or wrong, like on conviction level. No, no, no. I'm trying to say like. You know, if Sal knew that he might be digging John, but if he also knew, because he also says at one point, like, I knew you were straight. Like, I knew. And I didn't want to wreck you. Yeah. Was that encounter, I don't want to use the word predatory, but you get what I'm saying, right? It was very manip- He was. He saw that he was going to manipulate someone that wasn't that way into becoming that way. And later he probably would have, re- you regret. Yeah. John- Jonathan would have looked in 10 years like, wait a minute. You know, I'm look. I'm seeing you, and I'm not loving loving you like that. But I see all these women. I want to be with them. It's it's a regret thing. Sal knew that he was gay. He knew he didn't want to drag. It was probably a confusing time for him. I mean, the '70s. We were just. This is the '70s, so it's. Yeah. They're still just now. You know, the decade of love after after the hippie era. This is gonna be the weirdest thing to say, but I kind of hope that if this is autobiographical, autobiographical, and if there really is a Sal, I hope that he really did. Have AIDS and die because when I initially read this, I was like, "Is this like just a like an AIDS phobia thing?" Like you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Like, no, oh, I had a gay friend, there. and oh, he got the AIDS. Like you know, like <laughs> yeah, he that, got the AIDS. Right. So it was like, 
oh, like that. It just felt like something you'd watch in a biopic, right? Like, yeah. And then he goes back and, oh, that one guy, that one gay guy I knew, he got the AIDS. Like, he got the AIDS, you know? And there was a time where that was a real big stigma on that community. So I hope that if this happened, and it sounds like the weirdest thing to ever to say, hope somebody had cancer, but I hope that, that it was uh, real and it's that not it was just... real and it wasn't just like, oh, I knew this one gay guy in high school. Uh, we had a gay experience. We separated for 30 years and when I, or for 20 years and when I came back, he had AIDS and he died. It's like, yeah, that'd be kind of messed up. 100%. 100%. But, that'd be kind of messed up. But again, I'm, I'm believing in my best, you know, case scenario, me, you know, trying to look at the bright side that this was something that actually happened. Because if not, it gets kind of problematic. But yeah, let's, um, let's jump into the formative years. Yes. In 1982, Jonathan attended Yale and started getting into bar fights. Like, I think it was like every weekend in which he called his Hemingway phase. Hemingway a big fighter? I think Hemingway was a was a bar fighter. Uh, got drunk and fought in bars. I know he said he uh, fighting around the world. Jonathan said he lost his first fight. Oh no, won his first fight, lost his second. Well, he was learning about the right right hook and the cross, and uh, he also was a fence left he did jab fencing and the right in, and the right cross too. Yeah, his name was uh, Crino oh. for his big nose, which yes. I I think his coach was just being anti-Semitic. Because you already know Jonathan Ames is Jewish. Yes, and so is the Jonathan so, character in the book. Yeah, That's so. Calling calling him Big Nose for his big, I feel like that was a little bit racist. But. Just a bit. So, um, yeah, uh, in 1986, Sal graduated. Uh, Jonathan graduated from Yale, and two months later, both his parents died in a horrific car wreck, leaving Jonathan a young, alone, and with full inheritance. All he had, all he had left was his great aunt Sadie, who was the closest he had in his life. Sadie convinces him to take a vacation in Paris to find himself. This was really great for me. Because so I this feel- is the weirdest thing for me because I've gotten now two different two different instances of this same plot. Um it's it's ironic, but you know, I, I have been watching Bojack Horseman and I know I've told Oh, so you this. this was basically Bojack so there's in a, a sense. Well there's this there's an episode in which a, a female character without spoiling too much uh, goes through a really big bad breakup and decides that she's gonna go back to her country of origin to find herself, and ultimately doesn't find anything. I, John went to Paris and he kind of made life for himself. So I I I wonder how viable that option is, right? Like, can you just go to another country and say you're just gonna backpack for you know a couple months? Does that work, or are you ultimately still the outsider? A lot of the reason why people leave when they're heartbroken is because they feel like the outsider here in the regular world. So they go somewhere where no one recognizes them so that they, it will be fine. Um, I wonder, does it in more cases than not, do you end up becoming a Jonathan tasting the world and realizing a different version of yourself? Or do, do you end up ultimately still feeling like the outsider in another country? I, I think it's all about how you, this is all personal. It's you, how you feel. Yeah. Me personally, if I don't want to feel self pity, if I don't want to feel self-loathing, I'm not. I I can't um, relate. Like, I can't empathize with anybody that lost a parent. Okay. You, my actual friend, Sal, that lost his mom, or, or my friend, Justin. I can't relate to any of them. Right. My parents are here. You know, my parents are still... If I want to, even though I don't have a relationship with my father, I could still call him. Right. And say I love you. So yeah. I can never know what it feels like to... Especially at 24. Yeah. 24, you know, fresh out of college, and this is what we go talking to, like, the closure. Yeah. He's an alcoholic. 
because of the lack of closure. He he spent a lot of his formative teen years trying to get his parents to catch him drunk. Yes. Going so much as to falling in the floor and sleeping in the kitchen, throwing up all over himself and smelling like beer. He never got that closure with his parents, and he always felt he disappointed them in a sense. Which is weird in its in its own right, right? Because it's like, I blame you for trusting me too much. Almost a little bit. Yeah. You know? In a sense. Well, you were talking about earlier about, like, you know, it's your parents' fault, but it's also not your parents' fault. You know, it's, it's also something I learned in BoJack, which is that... Um, you you're a child and you are i mean you're not you're a child sorry you are a person made up of childhood traumas it don't have to be a litany of them but a certain amount of them have shaped you into becoming the way that you are it's undeniable even if you only had one even one day when you were to go uh you know um go to the corner store you saw a man hit a woman and that you know changed your life forever things happen especially when we're young um, with the people that are close you know to us and people who that love kids us, are? yeah. Like, do, like I don't know if if adults fully, truly understand that what you do to a kid is what is going to be their entire life, and I, I think it's Mr. Miracle that would that 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 it tells you, you know, oh like, how somebody's raised, yeah, how someone is raised, right? Like, could like, like with that conversation with with Barda and 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 Scott, hey, we were raised on Apocalypse, and we turned out fine. Are but, we it fine, but it doesn't have to be that way. Is yeah. where is where it comes out to again. Um, I say the parent thing to say that uh, while we are humans with our own tra- childhood traumas, our parents are also humans with their with their own childhood traumas that they never so got over. To, the same way that we're trying to get over ours, and the same way we hope our kids get over theirs. But I feel like the but, generation before us didn't get over it. and us now we're more smarter well, we have the internet we have people to like well mental health is a bigger case now, now than, than it ever was, than yeah. it ever was and if ever. we go back to what we were talking about before um alcohol was seen as the thing the intermediate thing you had a hard day at work drink yep you know you uh you 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 you, you, you want to write something you want to de- delve into your emotions drink you know, i had to stop myself from buying a beer and drinking a beer while we were talking <laughs> about, about an alcoholic. alcoholic yeah um yeah you know it's and I don't, I don't turn my nose up. I think all, all there's all forms of addiction. You know, like I'm not. This is not a, a thing where it's like, well, you, you ever know. watched the show My Strangest Addiction? No, I've seen I've seen episodes, but I I don't frequently. There's the show. people that are addicted to literally sucking on um wet napkins. Like they will put a napkin under water, fill it with water, and then just put it in its mouth and suck on it. And they can't yeah. legit tell their brain to stop. The way we cope with things, I'm I'm never gonna be one to um judge anyone or criticize anyone but i do think that it, we have to ask ourselves why we're doing them why are we doing these things um and we have to moderate you know how much of it that we're doing but um with this with his death and him going to paris yeah he i don't think he ever ultimately um i don't think he ever ultimately comes to terms with what happened with his parents and i even go so far as to say i don't think his relationship with his aunt is filling the parental role that was there. She's calling her kind of like a cool, <laughs> like a yeah. cool cousin. Yeah, basically, she's a friend more than she is a parental role. Right, and he's still. And I think young. he he knows that. You understand? Know and I think that because he knows that, there's a it's it's the weirdest thing. Like you were just talking about acting out. 
there's a certain level of recklessness that comes into your life once you realize no one's paying attention. Oh, you're 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 hitting the nail on the head with that one, man. Um, and part of it is is self-loathing because you realize that if well, if no one cares about what happens to me, what the hell? Do, why the hell do I care about what happens to me? Um, and I again, you gotta you gotta be careful with that. You have to be careful with how those ideas enter your mind and and what they tell you. Um, I, alcohol is scientifically proven to do all the things that you think it does as far as giving you endorphins, as far as, um, you know, uh, lessening the wall between your in- inhibiting uh, feelings that I you want to I get more confident do. in alcohol. If I drink a beer, that's, I'll be able to approach a woman. But that's clinically proven. Like, it does that. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, it blocks... Uh, it may make you slur or may make you stumble, but for the most part, it makes you, you feel like You release your inhibitions, you're, basically. You, it makes you feel like you're you're doing great. Uh, it makes you feel cor- courageous, and it makes you feel all your emotions... Um, in an intense way, but that's when people start to short. Um, that's when people start to make bold. What do you call it? Like blanket statements. Like, okay, well, you know, and a writer should drink because that's how they get into the into the mode. And it's like, well, if you have to be absolutely trashed, if you have to lose your wife and kids to write, is that worth it? No. Is that you know? Is that a life? Tragic, real life tragedy is not worth being able to uh, get it out on paper. And real life genius is not worth sabotaging the only body that you have. <laughs> yes, yes, that's. And I will stay straight up. You know, it's it's not worth destroying yourself for. All right, perfect example: uh, Nicholas Cage and Mike Figgis's um, leaving Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Nicholas Cage is a method actor. We all know this. Ha ha ha. Yes, we know this. Yep. He. Uh, he had to play an alcoholic in that movie, but I mean, this is a guy, a, a writer, a screenplay writer for Hollywood. That's a, that's an alcoholic. His plan was to kill himself, but drink himself to death. Not eat, barely sleep. Nick, the, the character's plan was to legit drink himself until he his liver collapses or whatever. Yeah. Nicholas Cage needed to know how to act as a blackout belligerent drunk, so he would literally every night get blackout belligerent drunk and videotape himself and then when he was sober he would watch how he acted <laughs> I think I've heard this not maybe not him I think somebody else also did something similar there's a lot of actors that do that they will they will hurt their they will put their body through the test videotape it and then when they're sober they're like okay I could do this I could do that see how I'm slurring here that's not worth genius well and we also talk about a lot of times like the younger uh, you know the younger uh generation of of um lost talents People who died way, you know, way earlier and younger than they were ever meant to. Elliot and, Smith. And um, we say, well, you know, they were just like they were, they were stars that were too bright. You know, they were they were too potent, and that's what happens. And it's like, no, that's actually not what happens. No. Uh, but a, a lot of times, what ends up happening, we um, we'll get there in a bit. But there's like a there's a bartender who I feel like enables. John. Oh, because he doesn't he doesn't necessarily have to deal with him. So when you don't have to deal with somebody, it's real easy to shoo them away or put them send them off somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you could, you broke up with your girlfriend? Hey, just go try to date other girls and then you leave the you walk out the room. I don't got to deal with any of the consequences of my advice in that moment. You know? And a lot of times um yeah, f- the friends and family of of addicts will enable um and what's even worse is that Sometimes when they don't, we'll just find friends and family that do. <laughs> so, you know, that I think that's part of the tragedy in all this. 
Well, getting to after he leaves Paris, he was in Paris for nine months, leaves Paris, and he, he moved dated back. A chick, right? Yeah, he dated a, he dated a French chick. They wrote for a little bit, then they just stopped writing, and then he returned to New Haven. To but be a taxi driver. I think it's important to talk about her stopping writing because I think this is the second instance of him being close to somebody and them just falling off the face of the earth. Well, right? I feel like also that this this wasn't really like... Because you see later with the, the city-named girl. Yeah. As opposed to this, this was just one of those flings that I was young and I said all... I talked all of this stuff like, yeah, you're the one for me, you're the one for me. And then you realize, well, maybe it was just that little, you know, like... Summertime love, but I would argue that he doesn't love the other girl either. Oh no, no, no! He definitely doesn't. And so the only reason why the other girl gets why Seattle, San Francisco, New York gets more play is because she did great things for his ego. <laughs> she didn't care that he was bald. She didn't care that he was old. And they some of the things that he feared in relationships happened went right with that one. And so he equated that to being the perfect equation then. And when she left, it became, well, then I'm not worthy of the perfect equation. There's absolutely nobody else on this round ball for me. Not another relationship. And he never found not one. A, no, because he stood, we never got the closure on that one. And he allowed her to pull and pull and pull the strings until he ended up 36. Alone. Going, you know, maybe I should let that the idea of that girl go. And I'm like... This is thirteen. Yeah, this is like thirteen years later. What? But again, that's always been my fear. My fear has always been that I would be so involved in somebody else that I would lose myself. That's why I'm looking and, at this as a cautionary tale. And literally lose time, opportunities, all those things. I believe in true love, and I believe that the person that I'm meant to be with, you know, like they'll see me for who I am, and and vice versa. It's the other thing. The other side of that, right? Is is like, um. We were talking about this uh, for your flaws and despite your flaws, right? We talked about this. Yes, there's the to, there's to love someone for their flaws and then to love someone in spite of their flaws, right? And some friends will love you even though you're an alcoholic. They will love you and they will talk to you about you, what you're doing and what, what it's causing and how how you probably should slow down. And that's loving someone in spite of their flaws, right? But if you're if you're if like let's say I'm just using for example, Dan's the alcoholic in the group in the Major Issues podcast group. So woo, Dan's coming over. We're gonna get trashed. You understand? And watch, he's gonna do some stupid shit because that's what he does when that's, he's drunk. That's loving someone for their flaws. That's almost and it's almost uh, pigeonholing you as oh, to be yeah. that person. Now you have to be that person. You have to be the person that stumbles and falls over and all that kind of stuff. Because um, you know what it is? It's once again ego is the most dangerous emotion a human can have. Because ego doesn't have to be your own, like, boasting chest out. Ego can be just somebody inviting you to party because you're the party animal. Now, yeah. you, now you feel like you have this code, this standard to live up to. But then, and you think, oh, is this really who I am? Because I've been there. Is this really who I am? Am I Dan, Dan, the garbage man? You know, am I, am I Dan does, does coke and drinks and goes off and does wild shit? Do I want to be that Dan? But then when you get there and it's all, hey, Dan, Dan, yeah, yeah, yeah my yeah, man, it's Dan. Easy, it's my very man. easy to you fall You get that right smile there, yeah. on your face and you forget, I just had this moment of clarity. Like, yeah. what are we, what am I doing here? Like, everybody wants to matter and everybody wants purpose. And it's all moments. That's what life is, a series of moments. It's yeah. not, it's not a series. It, it's not, here's one chapter, here's the next chapter, here's the next chapter. That's all moments together. But that's what's dangerous, right? Because, because life is just a collection of moments an alcoholic and addict just has to get to the next moment. 
They're not looking at the far scope of things. I might die tomorrow. What does it matter? What's my health? Is, what my liver is going to look like in 20 years? What does it matter? I'll binge drink because I'll fall asleep and then I'll wake up and there'll be another day. I literally got through the day. Then I got through the week. Then I got through the month. You're just going from moment to moment. You blink. You done went through 2,000 moments. It's been five years. And at none of the demons that you wanted to address, none of the problems that were actually bothering you have been addressed. You've just been been drowning them out. And what's the worst part of, what's the worst part about a character like this? Is these are one of those Bojack Rick Sanchez type characters. The yeah, reason 100%. the reason why is he went sober. If I'm not mistaken, he was sober for it said 42 days for about 11 years, about 13 years. Ish, he was sober. He like he quit in like uh he uh, I think 1998, no, 1988. Yeah. And then he didn't have a drink until like 2000. Okay. Or the after the whole debacle with who he met. Yeah. So he's going the whole 90s not one drink, but he's not realizing anything. He's not doing anything with himself, and all it really is, is if you read these chapters that he's not drinking, it's self-pitying. Yeah, it's I miss drinking. Like, why did I stop? Where and there's a, even a point where he passes by a bar, and he had to legit tell himself, "If I go in there, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow in a garbage can in my own puke. Don't do it." Well, are we at that story? I don't think that story. I think uh, that story is a hell of a story to tell. Oh, we're we're gonna get there right now because I want to get to when to here where Jonathan moves back to New Haven and becomes a taxi driver, and he meets a homosexual drug dealer named Arthur and has another sexually confused experience, where um him and this homosexual uh, drug dealer are doing coke, essentially just a lot of coke, and uh towards uh the end of the night, Jonathan's really high, really drunk, and. Arthur asked him to take his shirt off. So he did. Arthur asks him to dance. So he did. And in one of the most... I, I, This isn't... It's just the way it was drawn was very weird. You see ass hair and, and stomach hair. So it's just... But uh, essentially, Jonathan almost gets, in a sense, rammed from behind by this gay homosexual drug dealer. But he's totally said like he wanted to, right? Oh, no, he... He, he, in the moment, in the moment, with he, everything because he was on a lot of coke and a lot of alcohol. So in that moment, and he says it, I was really out of it, and he tried to have sex with me, but because of the coke, he couldn't do it. And then he wakes up in a garbage can. From waking up in a garbage can, he decides he looks at himself in the mirror, and he just has a moment of I need to get better. So oh, oh I think uh, he checked himself into a detox, and was there a week. After a week, they sent him to rehab. And here is here is the crux of this character because for someone that has stated he's he gets drunk for attention, well, yeah. when he was younger he was getting drunk for the attention, he seems to now as an adult hide his problems from the only person that I probably think would understand them and not judge and reprimand. That makes sense. I feel like if he was to have that conversation with Sadie at a young age, hey – I've been an alcoholic since I was 15, and it got worse because of my parents' death and Sal leaving, and I feel like I'm alone. She would sit him down, talk him straight. But I also wonder sometimes um, we very much try to understand what our image is in front of people, right? And so if he wanted to believe in a weird, obviously wrong way that Sadie wouldn't get him or that Sadie didn't know that he was drinking— because he brings up IBS, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, but not why, 
you know. Um, oh, he says they, it's uh, the stress from this girl. Yeah, but doesn't bring up the drinking. Um, you know, at several points, doesn't explain that he's that's what he's doing. He's using alcohol to numb his pains. Um, and I think it's to maintain whatever weird image he perceives she has of him. And once that happens, once that changes, we all have a bunch of what they call come to Jesus conversations yes. that that we need to have. I, I probably have five on my in my head right now. Real life, vulnerable, transparent conversations that I need to have with people in my life that will that will fundamentally change things forever, in a good or a bad way. But they need to happen. Why haven't I had them? Because I'm not ready for the status quo to change yet. Even if the status quo is not good. <laughs> you get, That's what's you, sad is we're you not keep ready with for routine. change. You keep up with routine regardless of what it is. And but you routine just, will kill you. 100%. Routine will kill you. But we need to believe that we are safe enough to make our own choices. And routine affords us that. Well, that's the thing is you wake up in, from the second that you're awake and you notice you're awake. Everything you do to the moment you go to sleep is your choice. Yeah, you choose to get dressed right away. You choose to stay in bed. You choose. Well, that's to one way to look at it, right? Because then now I wake up, but I wake up in um my grandmother's house, right? Because I got kicked out of here, right? I got kicked out of my apartment where I'm staying right now with my roommate, and now I'm in my grandmother's house. So I wake up. Um, everything I do is my choice. Well, except for this. Now I want to. I want to have a sandwich. But I can't just have a sandwich. <laughs> I'm in my grandmother's house. You know. Well, see, no, no. See, that's where you make the choice. I could make this sandwich and get yelled at and go through a whole argument. Or I cannot make the sandwich, feel hungry, n- and not sit through this argument. Yeah. Ev- no matter what, everything is a choice. How you choose to react to those consequences is a different story. But everything you do is a choice. If you know that what I'm doing is wrong and I do it anyways, you made that you made that choice to do something wrong. But it's the it's the cheating argument, right? Where it's like if you would if your your girlfriend said that she went to a, a party with and her ex was there and that they kissed but they didn't do anything else past that. They ended up in a room together, they kissed, they didn't do anything else past that, and it is what it is. You'd be upset. Um and you would say like well, you made several decisions till till it got to the point that you decided not to do anything else. But the decision well, to go, making a deci- but the decision to go to the party, still, the decision choice. to stay at the party, the decision to go to that room, yes. the decision to sit on that bed, all of those things are decisions. So what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we try to do it on a day to day. Like I woke up this morning, what are my choices? But we have to look at the choices we made that got us here. Oh no, one that got no, us I, in the bed that yes. we're in, that got us, you know, trying to make the sandwich that we want, all of those things. And I think sometimes he wakes up and he's like, My mother and my father are dead. Well, are they dead because God wanted to punish you, or are they dead because that just that's just, just a what freak happened? Accent, yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, you know, the love of my life won't call you back. Is this the love of your life? You've you've decided that this woman that you've slept around with a little bit who was half your age and ran away and never wanted to hit you back up. That's the one. It's what it's what you told me. Is this girl soulmate the one for you, or is this just the first real relationship that you had, and now you're feeling the like regret, you, the loss of that? Yeah. yeah, this is what it was for him. But he had it, this character has such a big ego, but it is a toxic ego. It's not this confident chest out yeah. ego. It's this. I think when most people say ego, it's in it with a negative connotation. Well, ego will always be in a negative connotation because yeah. there's confidence, then there's ego. Right. But there's also egos that aren't self-confident egos. There's also self-deprecating ego. Yeah. Like I'm, I can only get out of bed because I know I have a friend that I that I like to see. 
So I'm going to use that, that, that his love as a sense of making me alive. And, and then, when he stops loving you or when he can't be around to love you, then it's his fault while you're still in bed. Bam. And his fault while you're not doing anything. Yes, Which that's is, ego. That's possession. Right. When that's the level of accountability that I would never want to lose, and that's the level of accountability that I'm trying to impart on our listeners, is this 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 level of understanding that while you may not have all the cards in your deck, you it's still your hand to play. Um, and we all make mistakes, and I've made a litany of them, and most of them, most of my biggest mistakes have been done under the influence of alcohol because it, it got me, you know, riled up or made me feel like I've broken things, I've yelled at people, I've done the drunk calling stuff, you know, um, and... I, I've also done the I'm in a bad mood, so I'm going to drink stuff. And that's an active choice that I'm making. I don't have to, but it's an active choice that I make. And this, you know, this stimulant of alcohol is widely available. It's widely accepted. It's 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 sold I, in every corner store you go to. It's accessible. Um, and like you can find it anywhere. And so uh, I'm much more of a smoker now. After doing uh, my time in the military and getting some antidepressants that I wasn't really messing with, uh, that's how I choose to medicate at this point. But I also understand that that cannot be my go-to. That can't be my, oh, I stubbed my toe. Good Because it, it rolls downhill. It'll be, oh, I lost I'm my on, job. I, I then it'll be, exactly then it'll be like, you oh, you know, I stubbed my toe. Then it'll be like, oh... I thought there was going to be six chips in here and there's only five and a half. I guess I have to smoke. My day sucks. You know what I'm saying? I can't. Well, I, I don't have an appetite. I can't eat. I don't have pot. Well, I guess I'm not eating all day because I use pot to get me hungry right, to have right. that appetite. So there are times where I'll go a whole day, day and a half without eating because I don't have excessive It's food. our weird human logic that tries to tries to make our decisions seem plausible and seem like they were well thought out by adults. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're literally potholes that we're just covering over just so we can get well, to the next look place. look at your older cousins that are in their 20s or like your older uncles and aunts that are like in their 20s and 30s thinking, damn, they got it all worked out. They're adults. They, yeah. they, they're responsible. And then you get to their age and you realize, wait, they're just putting on an act. That's all we are and once putting you, on an act. Once you've gotten – once you've worked hard enough and you worked long enough – you realize that the idea of a party forever is one of the most exhausting <laughs> things in the history of the world. I have no no one can no, party forever. I have absolutely no problem with partying, drinking. I do all of it, uh, but the idea that you're just riding this wave and going from moment to moment of drinking and thing it will it will it will have you in a sense of disillusion with actual reality. You won't. It would be like everyone's living in this world, the world, the sober world, where everyone's doing what, like, living their normal days at nine to five, and then you live the alcoholic world, where it's like, I live from two in the morning to seven, and then three. You understand? Know because I, I did it when I came back off the military. Um, it got to the point where, and I hadn't smoked. Um, I had never smoked. And so I was like, oh, if that's taboo. That's the thing that I don't want to do. That's the thing that's going to make me a horrible person is if I smoke. Drinking, everyone drinks. Homer Simpson drinks. Like, I should be able to have a drink. And all of our TV dads are all drinkers. And I would bring in these six packs and finish them on my own. I, just to get to sleep, to wake up, to then, again, my power was my ability to pass time. You understand? I was able to pass time and no one could hurt me and I can make life enjoyable. I'll just drink, watch what I watch, go to sleep, wake up, drink, <laughs> and you keep it up that way. But all you're really doing is running in the opposite direction from your problems, hoping to get far enough. But the thing is, you're tethered. 
<laughs> They're your problems. They're not going to no one else. They're not going anywhere. Uh, and so life is about when you want to deal with them. And I've said this before. Uh, life will present you with an opportunity to make a choice and make it in the most comfortable fashion that you can. And then later on, if you have not made that choice, it will make you make that choice with, and it'd be a lot less comfortable. Oh, 100%. So you can either choose to stop drinking or you can have a court order, you know, a court order to stop drinking. Which is and where I think we that's get where, to. You know, that's, I think that's, that also has to do with like responsibility, accountability, that, those kind of things. Yeah. Go ahead, brother. Which is, uh, is basically where we get to because uh, now it's around 1988 and Jonathan is in rehab. And he, this is he's mostly in rehab because of this this image of like him waking up in a trash can naked in somebody else's home. Like it after traumatizes a him. Fueled homosexual experience. Yeah, he's like, yo, I really need to get clean. And he would say that every time he thought about drinking, he would think about himself laying out there in the trash can. And it's, even the imagery of it, it, it's almost like a long shot, like uh, the drawing of him in the trash can. Oh it's no, like, it's like definitely would shot. be like a nice little long shot. And it just shows you, like it just looks tragic. It looks on like it looks. Like, you would never want to be in that position, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and he gets, thank God he gets a lot of perspective in rehab from his roommate, Tony, and his counselor, Dr. Wilson. Because Tony lets him know, like, listen, man, they've done everything to me. They've tried electroshock therapy on me, and nothing is working. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just bad. Yeah. Like, I'm, I need to do drugs. I need to drink. Like, this is, and you, like, you could see in the drawings of each panel where his face is, like, stretched out. He has, like, these wrinkled lines. He looked like Ebony Maw, yeah. you know, like, in a sense. And he tells him, you know, if you don't cut this out now, like, you're young. If you don't cut this out now, it's going to destroy your life. Did you have any of that? Yeah. Did you have any older people be like, hey, you know, that, that stuff doesn't, you know, last forever kind of stuff? I had one father figure who's actually dead okay. now. Um, His name was Jimmy. He was was my, it because of stuff he was like my, that? Yep. He was my Uncle Jimmy. And when I was first, in, he he was, when I first introduced was introduced to him, he was in his 50s. And everybody said, yo, this is basically you if you don't calm down. And I'm, yeah, I met him when I was, when I was 20. He was like 55. And he was, and every, all my friends that knew him before me, all of his friends that were his age that knew him, they would all tell me on the side, yo, you remind me a lot of Jimmy when Jimmy was younger. I've known Jimmy forever. Like, you know, if you don't cut it out now, this is where your life is going to be. You want to be like Jimmy? You want to be like Jimmy? There were even times where I'm doing drugs, like not pot. I'm doing actual hard drugs and drinking with this man while he's telling me, he's like, you see me here? You see what I'm living in a garage. I I'm, I'm living in a, in a in a garage under an apartment in a small little room breathing in paint fumes and Ugh. asbestos and like yeah. his life was his life was bad. The only reason why he wasn't homeless is cuz he made good friends with the man who was a landlord of an apartment building. Uh. And he would keep him he had him living there basically as his like one of his like superintendents, like one of the uh porters. Yeah. But where he he could he wouldn't and set the, up And the thing is, you know, not to cut you off, but like in a million years do you think that's what you would have seen, Dan? Like as a porter in some apartment building. I I, I, said like... bef- I saw that before I met this guy. Like yeah. this is this would be my because you know my stepfather was that my stepfather was a porter, but there's I mean, nothing wrong with the job. He yeah, was, just the, wasn't set up I'm with a slumlord like, and given a an, a a garage apartment building. That's what that's what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with being a porter. What I mean is, 
Could when you were a kid and all the possibilities were in front of you as to how you were gonna finish the, the rest of your life as an adult, did you ever see it to the point where you had just gotten so, too comfortable? And so in your fifties, someone kind of gave you a freebie apartment and says, "Can you clean the rest of these apartments?" Like I don't, I don't even think that your friend thought that would happen to him at that age. When we're in the beginning, everything is so idealistic. My dream I job, my dream girl. I was years old. Yeah, my dream job, my dream girl or boy, my dream apartment, my the places that I the place that I want to live, and then your choices catch up to you if you're not paying attention, and you again, it make choices for you. Yep, yep. Because at 65 it, years old, this man he died of lung cancer. Yeah, he died of lung cancer. And that is kind of young. Too. And towards his towards his last moments, he. He couldn't stand the pain of the chemo and all the medicine he was on. Oh, man. He had to do heroin for the to to settle his stomach. I mean, not inject it and, right, and right, cook right. it. No, but he was he was snorting heroin. And he said it. He's like, this is the one. I've done a lot of drugs. I've done angel dust and shrooms. Like, I've done a lot of drugs. This was the one drug I always told myself I was never going to go near. In his last moments of death, he could not have fit anything in his stomach. He, need, he needed something. And yeah. the chemicals in the heroin was helping the chemicals that was in his body fighting the cancer. Yeah. That's... In the end, he he died young. He died broke. You know, like all as you hear, gangly. right? As you hear, right? Like he died looking the way Tony looked in this book. So I had a Tony yeah. in my life. I oh, had so a, this was just ringing all the bells. I had a Doctor Wilson in my life that you know, like, and that, I love that moment where he's like, you know, I don't know if I'm gay or not. And she said, Well, are you attracted to men? No, I've never looked at a guy that way before. Well, then you're not gay, but you do miss your friend. How do you feel about him saying that he might love her? Oh, just, that was... You think that's just reactionary? That's... You know what it is? Is It's 100% reactionary. And she says it's called transference. Yeah. And it's, it is true. It is true. There's been moments in my life where I was young. Uh, if I, I would be bullied in school. And then one girl will come up and pick up my, help me pick up my pencils and my papers. And I would look at her and I'd be like, I'm in love. <laughs> right. We all have gone through it because it's, it's a transference of emotion. It's like when you go through trauma and painstaking emotions, but there's one little angel there to help you feel better. You're well, like, the same way. When you, you go through trauma, you hang those traumatic events on the person. Yeah. You don't just say that it was an, just a traumatic event. You say, that person traumatized me. And, and that sometimes will make it harder to come to closure because you're looking at it as a personal a vendetta, vendetta against you. Uh, yeah, Versus... Something that happened to you, and like I said, that, that's a lot of that's another big part. Like your trauma in the military life. wasn't personal trauma. There was no, nobody that was personally to trying me. to. Yeah, yeah, no one was trying to kill you personally. Right, you were part of a collective. But for a little while, I felt like I was a disenfranchised member of society. I felt like somebody dealing with mental issues that were that were kind of given to me by an organization. But I, I had to put my hands back on the steering wheel. Yeah, I had to say, oh well. This psalm story that I wrote that I wrote ends with me on a myriad of pills because I cannot control how my life is going. I already said it. I said that PTSD's gotten uh, full control. Army, I'm, I'm. You could throw me away as a person. I, I have no value. And that's sometimes what we do with it. We it's like, oh, I'm just this. I'm just that. It's like, well, like if if you're gonna. Put that positive reinforcement, I mean, negative reinforcement on yourself. It's going to have a, a bunch of negative effects. And I think that one of the biggest, brightest things, something that said under the rug the first time. Then the second time it said, it said it a little bit more pronounced. And the third time it's almost blaring. But it's like, I don't like myself. 
He says it several times in this book. Oh, he says it all throughout. The first time he says it, though, he says it like nonchalantly. I don't, yeah, you know, I, don't, I guess I, I never really liked myself. And he's like, that's it. That's the issue. That's the problem. You're looking for your value in other people. In your friends that are like, oh, look at John. He's drinking. He's doing what he got to do. In That's women. why this book is so fucking hard to read because I'm literally reading somebody that lived my life before I lived my life, and then he decided to illustrate it in but a that's memoir. That's the greatest part. It, the, the greatest part is to say that these 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 roads that we travel that seem so desolate and seem so, um, you know, so, um, solemn. We're not traveling them alone. People have not only not only are people traveling those roads right now that you don't know. People will in the future. And people have already. And that's what every parent is afraid of. Their yes. kid following the road that they walk down. But instead of constructing a road that allows for all the experiences, they dam up their road. And then the kid just goes, well, you did all those things. How come all of a sudden, what does that mean? And I guess it's just, I'm just going to do them and just not tell you. And then we're just a bunch of broken people just continuing to be broken. And there's nothing wrong with broken people being broken. We just have to acknowledge that no one is perfect and everyone's trying their hardest. Um, sometimes We look at our parents as these people who are supposed to have all the answers and supposed to been know what's going on. Um, my mom was younger than I am right now when she had me. And if I had a kid at that age, I wouldn't know what to oh, do. Oh, yeah, I don't my know what mom to do myself. was like 21 when she had me, 22 when she had me. So I, I know where exactly I was at 22. I was homeless on coke and an alcoholic. I can't be a dad the way I was at 22. My life started going bad at 21, and it just kept going down out of my own, you know, stupidity. Personal question, and not, obviously I don't mean to be offensive, but I definitely um, ask this because I I don't know. How how does one end up um, homeless but also on coke? Isn't coke, like, very expensive? Well, just like they said in the book, coke is for sharing. Okay, okay. I actually have friends that would shared. have you buy for a coke, but nothing else. Yeah. Okay. But no, well, because I spent a lot of my. I was a construction worker from eighteen to twenty-two. Yeah. I spent those years splitting everyone's bill. Yeah. Everyone, yo, we want a party, but we ain't got nothing. Here you go. Here's two hundred bucks. You know, I get paid tomorrow. It doesn't matter. And when I get paid, I'm gonna get paid like six, seven hundred dollars. So yeah. what's two hundred dollars right now when I know I'm gonna have an extra, an extra seven hundred tomorrow? So my direct deposit comes in. I spent five, like four or five years just footing the bill for everybody to when I became homeless and my friends saw me like legit sleeping on trains or showering in bathrooms of McDonald's. They foot the bill. Yeah. I mean, they didn't foot the bill forever because after a while it's like, yo, get your shit together. But I had friends that uh, there was this one time I got really black. It was Christmas Eve and I started drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Bought a bottle of Honey Jack. Mm. And I started drinking. Oh, that it. was my jam. That was my jam time. too. Bought a bottle of Honey Jack and a and a small gentleman Jack. Yeah. And I started drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. By eleven twelve, I'm blackout. By by twelve hours later, I'm legit being held up by my head with my friend with a key near my nose, saying, "If you drop this, I'm gonna punch you." Smell. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready to go. Because yeah. I've I've legit have uh, for years lived day to day not knowing sobriety. Yeah. And it you you're, need you're chasing, to not you're chasing that 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 dragon. You need to I'm telling people you you can't do that. You cannot know what it feels like to not be sober for anywhere more than 2 3 days because once that week once that week is over and you're not sober anymore the first 2 hours it's going to gets bad. 
It gets because you start thinking about all the terrible decisions that you made, and you start thinking about your parents and what if they well, found that's why out. That's why people try to ride that feeling out. You know, th- there's obviously proven uh, negative physical um, side effects to stopping drinking. If you've been a, if you've been a career drinker, as they say, if you stop drinking, all of a sudden there are actual negative physical effects that will happen. Oh yeah, um, and. But like you also said, there's also also emotional effects and mental effects, and your body runs on on chemistry. It literally does. All parts of it run on chemistry, and so when you put something like that in your body, or if you put it in for so long that you just take it away, um, you're gonna have negative effects. And some of those are so painful, whether they're you know mental, physical, or emotional, that um, we're willing to stay drunk so as to not feel the withdrawal symptoms. And my withdrawals from from um, inebriation, whether it's drugs or alcohol, it wasn't physical. I was never physically ill or like, oh, my body is shaking up. Can someone get me a joint? You know, it's it was nothing like that. It it was all sobriety. It was it was legit emotional sobriety. I yeah. could, after a while, I could not handle being so. And now it's it's bad. And I want to I want to change my life because being sober to me is much more of a chore. Yeah. Much more of a chore. But, you know, we all need to to clear our minds and clear our bodies. And after 42 days, my man Jonathan Ames was sober, clean of mind, and ready to move on. 24, 24 and sober. John moved to a small studio in 1988 and looked up his old friend Sal. And the two reconnected for a short period of time before Sal ultimately ended things, telling John, I didn't want to wreck you. I knew you were straight. I was gay. I didn't want to wreck you. At one point, he he questions whether or not that statement was said in reference to the AIDS. Did you think that as well? I don't think it was because he stopped being his friend at six at fifteen sixteen, well well before any of that would have happened. Okay, I think like we were talking, he didn't want to wreck him as in if he knew he was straight. He, he didn't, didn't want to force him in a situation. He didn't he want to force him in, yeah. into that homosexual experience that he knew ultimately Jonathan's not going to want. Yeah, and he didn't want. He rather have been like hated or whatever for leaving so abruptly. Than being regretted for another for a whole ten years of a love Jonathan didn't want, I think that's much more bad because that leaving abruptly is what turned him depressed. You were the first person in his life that left without any cause. There was no rhyme of reason to, in his mind why you left. And you know they they don't. I mean, and obviously it was a different time then. Odds are now you could probably talk to somebody about it. You know, but um, no, you're right. That was what's so bad. So um. And then you eventually find out Sal was dying of AIDS yes. from a high school reunion letter, basically, which kind of sucks. Yeah. But uh, then you get this little chronicle of the next, like, 10 years of his of uh, Jonathan's life, and you see him slowly balding, and then you're talking about having that single-strand comb-over, and if it's a good look, and how some guys can pull it off. And uh, I think there was a nice panel I liked in eight in 1998 where he did pass by this little romantic bar in the East village. And mm-hmm. he's like, I want to go in, but I'm going to wake up in a trash can if I do. And then basically, you know, it's 2000. Jonathan is a successful writer. He's 36. He has a bunch of books out, a whole little detective series. Um, He's yeah. at Barnes and Nobles and little books clubs and reading excerpts and meeting fans. His aunt is by his side the whole way saying, this is my nephew. And then, he meets and falls in love with a young 23-year-old woman who's 13 years younger than him. Yep. But he doesn't care because she didn't care. He was bald. She loved it. He was old. She didn't mind it. This right here, 
is the downfall of his of the rest of this book. Meeting this and woman, he, falling he, in love, he, becomes he, the downfall. But what's also crazy, because I'm not going to lie, I didn't realize it until you just said it now. The pain that this girl puts him through is eight-tenths of this book. Yeah. But look at when it happened. It happened when he was in his 30s. It happened in 2000. Those two years post her, he's miserable. Absolutely miserable. Miserable. But it literally just happened. You literally just met her. This is not like a relationship that started in 1995 and then y'all dated till 2000. And then she left you and it was like, what No, what, what he happened? met her in the turn of the new century. And she was gone before 9-11. Yeah. They only dated for like six, six seven months. And, and then she went to California. So he, so statistically, he was willing to put more of his life, throw more of his life away than he, was, than he gave Actually her. Actually with her. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, that doesn't work, B. That doesn't work. And I understand. I'm not saying any of these things like I've never felt this way. Oh, no. I'm feeling but, it right now. But like, I, I trust I, The reason why I fight against it so much is I cannot allow that mindset to be something that people think is okay. Regardless you of tell me you it all it. the time when I'm when I'm trying to like be self pity. You're like, yo, I mean, you live 27 years without this girl. Okay, is it the be all end all? And it's true for he lived 10 more years than me without this girl. Yeah. And they over they only had a semester. And he was ready. He was together. ready to write himself off. That girl, that 23 year old girl, he couldn't find no one his age. He couldn't find no one in, the, in another town. He couldn't find another writer. He couldn't find another drinker. You understand? Know no one that's into scat humor, you know. He couldn't find no one that has actual things that he could agree with. He was more obsessed with the person that that liked him, seemingly, like you said, for his flaws. And it's basically the next two years of his life was just this one big coked out, drunken, strung off, uh, fueled rager. Yeah, because he meets first... his friend Bill. He sees his friend Bill, an old ex-con. Well, first you got that moment where they have dinner, and she's like, "I'm getting a job in San Francisco," and he's like, "Oh yeah, we could totally move to San Francisco." And she's like, "Yeah, okay." But then she's, she's like, brushing yeah, him she... off. She's then, brushing him yeah, off. Yeah, and then they get there, and he's, she's like, "Yeah, we need a breakup." You know, once they get to San Francisco, she, she she's like, "Yeah, by the way, you're too old. I don't think this relationship is gonna work." And then they break up. So it's like he was. I'm pretty sure she was figuring out, like, oh, wow, life is way bigger and broader. And she moved to three much- different cities in two years. Yeah. Well, in, a, in about, a, about a year and a half, because it's it's from 2000 to 2001. How you feel about that whole, uh, what is it, if the phone doesn't ring, it's me? Oh, that is, I didn't, I forgot about that line, and now that I'm hearing now, oh, that is such an impactful line to just hear, just know, if the phone rings, it's her. If the phone doesn't ring, it's her. That's crazy. And I I don't know if I can now in this new age of like toxic masculinity and <laughs> starting to see that a lot of what women are doing isn't to- it, it's because of what men are l- allowing them to get away with. Yeah. He's allowing her to come into her into back into his life every 2-3 months. Yeah. Sleep with her. Uh, cause a fight that just that calling. She- Sometimes she just calls him. Once but the a worst month, part and was he picks up like a puppy dog. For, th- for I think it was like for a good six months, she would purposely call when he know when she knows he's not home, and then leave a message saying just calling to think about you. I miss you. I love you. Like that. You're a lot to even the point where he he asked a bunch of people he's like here. Can I tell you uh my little situation about what's going down with this girl? Yeah, bro, you're her bitch. Yeah, you're her bitch. 
Yeah. Straight up. You're, and he spends the, the rest of the book telling people, I'm in love with this girl. She broke my heart. I'm her bitch. That's, mm. Like, it, it gets, it's bad. Like, he loses so many perfect opportunities in his life, not only because of the alcohol, but because of his self-deprecation towards Seattle, Chicago, whatever. Yeah. Like that job he gets um, at the all-girls school. Right. Totally blew it. Like blows it. You didn't yeah. have you didn't have to go. And that was a very stupid situation that he got himself into. Which that's happened, actually not my favorite. That's like my least favorite part of the book. Which honestly. happens with Bojack. It happens in Bojack. It happens with Rick Sanchez. Like with the Unity did, episode. How and do you stuff. get back into this? You know what this is. You know this is all garbage. You know that you you're somebody. You're in a better place because somebody gave you a chance despite your bullshit history, <laughs> despite your bullshit instincts. Someone took a chance on you. And you're going to throw all that away because of your comfort zone. Because you can't close the door. Not cool. Not cool, B. No, it, it, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. Because, especially since, you know, he spends the next year or so playing phone tag with this girl. And, you know, during that time, he uh, Jonathan experienced 9-11 and grief firsthand in one of the most powerful parts of this book. Yeah. When he had to go with his neighbor, Ellen, to the morgue to yeah, identify her I mean, neighbor. the whole 9-11 stuff in general was crazy. And the way he was like, the way he was explaining is like, how can I feel bad for myself right now when the whole world is, you know, at a standstill? Or when he was, when they had to walk to Bellevue and he's like, look at it, the whole world is at war and these, some restaurants are open as if nothing is happening. Like he's yeah. seeing the whole world through this like nihilistic approach because of 9-11. And I think it's that the mix of the girl, Sal dying and 9-11, it just gives him much more of a reason to say, well, nothing matters. So let me just be this way. Yes, and I think we all go through the nothing matters phase. Because when we when we grow up, everything matters. <laughs> Literally yeah. everything matters. What you have for dinner matters. What your best friend's wearing in class matters. All of that matters when you're growing up. You literally pay attention to everything. And I think as you start to ha- get hurt and have trauma, we all close doors on various experiences in life to say, I don't want to get hurt anymore, so nothing matters. And then, like I said, you, you, can, you, you throw away the most valuable thing that we have, which is time. Basically, we throw it all. We, we throw it all away for what? What do we exactly throw all to this escape crap away? momentarily? That's it. To get out of the pain momentarily. My tooth hurts, so instead of going to the dentist, I'm just gonna take a bunch of pain painkillers, pain pain basically. Yes. And so I'll just keep doing that. It's never gonna fix my tooth ever. It literally can't. <laughs> a, a pill cannot b- fix a broken tooth, but you know. I guess being comfortable, uh, being temporarily comfortable sometimes to some people is more important than being permanently healthy. And basically, we after the whole 9-11 debacle, uh, life just still keeps going badly for Jonathan. He has, uh, his I was scared he was going to date that, that woman. Which woman? The woman, his neighbor. Oh, you were scared he was going to end up dating her? Yeah. Because well, I I, I, for the most part, there's very little women introduced to here that he's not with. True. Right? So I'm like, yeah. And then basically you have you still have his coke-filled rages, going to Russian bathhouses. Um, his irritable bowel syndrome is his uh, back and still exploding. And he still has not written his final goodbye letter to Sal, which is another piece of closure he'll never get. But by that point... But let's talk a little bit about the bathhouse I want to because it just shows... Oh, yes. Let's go ahead. It shows a little bit of a pathological... 
um, desire to and, 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 and awareness that what he's doing is wrong. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He does this with the, the neti pot, with the coke, right? Yeah. Where every time he does coke, he'll go and then try to flush out his sinuses with the pot. It's like... He tried That's giving not... blood after having a coke-filled rager and then felt bad because he didn't want to do like it's just he's like great. it's it's just um it, it it's just recklessness at that point uh, but it's a but it shows semblance of responsibility. He knows what he would ha- what he would want to do or have to do to get clean. You know, and that those steam baths he felt like were detoxing him but it didn't matter because of how much toxicity he was ending, putting into his body because of was Bill? Who? Oh, the, uh, the the yeah, bar- Bill is the bartender. Yeah, because yeah. that's what that's around that time. And there's the, even a the bathhouses is around the time where he keeps imagining himself as rats, <laughs> him and his boys, yeah, as rats doing coke. So yeah, and it gets so bad because he's even because he says it. He's like, so I had to wait my turn, snort a line. I was hungry for the stuff like a rat. And this 108 pages in, and this is the first time where he openly admits he has a, he has a coke problem. Because before, mm-hmm. every time, he would always, he says it straight up, I'm an alcoholic. But he never really openly says, I'm addicted to coke. But you know, reading it, he definitely has a coke problem. And he's yeah. sitting there, he's like, yo, I'm, I'm, I was hungry for but it. But he never the does my... coke by himself. Never, he's a social coker. Is that a thing? So, <laughs> uh, actually, yes. Okay. So, me, personally, I have never once bought coke for myself. Like, actually, paid the money, had it. Kept it in my wallet. Every I'm gonna go do coke, and I'm gonna go do coke by my. I've never once done coke by myself because I personally believe once you do a drug by yourself, that's it. Okay, you're there. So that's your line. That's that's my line. Doing doing certain doing hard drugs by myself. I won't do it because I know that if I never do it by myself, I'm never gonna have that need to be alone and be high. It's just if I'm at a party and someone says, "Hey, man, you want to do a line?" I'll do a line. Mm-hmm. It's just one little harmless line, no harm. Uh, it's one little line, and I don't go out the next day and look for it and keep going and keep going and keep going. And same for Jonathan; he doesn't go out and look for coke; he just finds it. But he knows where to find it. He knows where to find it. That goes back to my whole thing about um, personal responsibility. You can keep if you have the one friend with the coke, and you keep saying, "Well, you know, I'm not going to do coke. I'm just going to keep going to that one friend with the coke's house." You know, you're putting one hand, one one. Uh, what is it? One leg in the grave? How do you say? One foot in the grave. Oh yeah, you're putting one foot in the grave, basically. You're not helping yourself. Understand the choices that get you to where you're at, and realize when you've made them earlier. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> no, that you're on the money for that, because it, it even shows like it's like oh my, it's like oh my god, Dan. I don't know what what it is, but every time I'm here with two six packs, I can't help but drink them both and black out. Their next question would be, why do you have two six packs? Like, where did they come from? Did they just did you just wake up in two six? Well, packs of no, Dan. I had a bad day, and then I went and I ah, bought them, and I bought go. them over. But I just can't help myself around them. Well, what the hell? You've made several decisions in the beginning that you have to be transparent. You have to be honest with yourself. And I'm not saying it's easy. Not at all. It's not easy at all because you're ultimately blaming yourself in the way in the only way that matters, the healthy way that says, "And now, how do I fix it?" Not just the way of I suck, I suck, I suck. That doesn't do anything for anybody. It doesn't help anybody get anything accomplished. I will tell you straight up, the hardest decision in in life is not making that decision. Not make the, not buying a beer from the store. Not calling up the one friend that you know that has heroin. Not going and picking up a cigarette off the floor. Not eating that 
that uh, big piece of cake. You know, like that's the hardest decision in the world to not do it. Yeah. To not do something, that's more harder than doing it. Anybody can do anything. It is so easy to, without even a single thought, put a meth pipe to your lips and light it up. So easy. I also believe that there's a certain level of, um, like I said again, like realization. Like when I was in my bad, in my bad throes of substance abuse, mostly alcohol, I knew it. I knew that's what I was doing. I knew fully well of course that I was medicating that way. I knew fully well I was running away from my problems. Um, and so, yeah, that's all. All I hope that this conversation, this book does, is help people have more honest conversations with themselves, realize where their strengths are, where their limitations are, and realize that they're that they are worthy. And you shouldn't throw yourself away because of a handful of traumatic events. I said, and I've said it a million times, that the only difference between a hero and a villain is how they handle traumatic events. True. It's the same thing. We all gonna go through trauma. All of us. Batman went through trauma, he became Batman. Joker went through trauma, he, he shot became, a bunch of kids on the train. And he became a villain, you know? Um, and so, I'm not here to compare anyone's trauma to, you know, to anyone else's, but come on, like, you, you can't you lose, go through you trauma, can't, I go through trauma. You can't just lose the whole, you can't set the whole store on fire when, when something goes wrong. Every time milk spills, it's not a cause for catastrophe. It's not a cause to run to your vices. Get because damn they, paper towels. They no? will sit there. Isn't that the thing? Milk spills, you go to your vices, the milk is still there. Then you remember the milk is there and you go back to your vices. Because you're mad that the milk's there. And you and then you but instead of ever cleaning it, you just keep and then your boys go, Bro, is there milk on the ground? And you go, oh, don't worry about it, bro. Here's a beer. And that's it. And you just ignoring the I spill. hope I'm never that bad. <laughs> but I'm saying you're just ignoring the spill that is your life, that was your decision, that was anything. You're you're ignoring it because you don't want to clean. You think this this longer way of self-medication is easier and it never is. No, and it, it showed when Jonathan gets these little opportunities to go to an all-girls school and be a guest speaker for a week. What does he Again, do? somebody else sticking their neck out in the line for him. Mm-hmm. This happened several this is, times. Yep. Someone stuck their neck out and said, hey, I know this guy who's a perfect writer for your little uh, writer's gig. And what happens? He ends up in a, in a semi-orgy with 10 college girls that are definitely anywhere from 18 to 22. So we're talking a man that's 15 years older. And a professor. And a professor. That's a teacher. Thing. He's, he's being like, a, he's a, he's a special guest teacher. The, the panel where he's in the principal's office, being uh, the dean's office, being yelled at the dean, and he has one shoe on, and then he has to take the train home from Connecticut or whatever yeah. to with one shoe and a hole in his sock. And from there he goes to, I don't know how to pronounce the name of this island, Bikura, Bekura, Bukura. It's off the Grenadian Islands. And I have no Buka, idea. Bu- that that sounds familiar. Bikua or Kai Bikira? It's some sort of Grenada. It's an island in Grenada. It's an island in Saint Vincent and the Grenada. Yeah, Grena- Grenadines. Grenadines. Yes, there you yes. go. And because he he went there after that whole um, Bequia. Bequia. He went there after the whole uh, little uh, drunken orgy thing in college. And uh, then he come. I think did he meet Monica Lewinsky first? Because I know he met Monica. Oh, no, I completely forgot that that happened. Oh yeah, he meets Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah. The Monica thing I felt was a little bit forced. Not forced. I found it weird that he would find time to make fun of her with the life that he was living. Oh yeah, or she's like, like the cabalsa looks even, delicious. Even in the middle of his drunken diarrhea, <laughs> sorry, diarrhea and coke filled. Days he still has time to make a dick joke at Monica Lewinsky. I just found that a little, little poignant. It's like wow, even when we're down, we'll still kick people. You know, 
but still make sure somebody else is kicked at least a little bit more. Yeah, and f- so, uh, see, I kind of like this part of him in a Bikura or yeah. whatever, where he's like, he, because he goes there for rehab. He goes to an off island for rehab, and he meets a local named Desmond, and they smoke. Oh yeah, it's the one that's like I never, I stopped caring a long time ago, and I just go from island to island doing whatever, whatever I want. Yep, do. he's like New York's a bad place, man. You should just just move here, and because he goes there to get better, and the guy's like. You want to smoke pot? Mm-hmm. And in his head, he's like, I shouldn't. Next panel, he's oh, smoking so pot on nothing. the beach. Every time he smokes pot, he's fine. I, it, <laughs> the <laughs> first time he smoked pot in this book, he legit was just looking at the water droplets down on a beer, the condensation on a droplet. Yeah. He's like, I like this. this is- the other time he smoked and he was drunk, and that is bad. He'll give you the spins. and then. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, like, he, I didn't even want to move because I didn't know if I was going to throw up or whatever. The world was spinning too fast. It's just so funny how he disrespects the locals, where he's just wa- he's stoned, he's by himself, walking a beach. Well, he just says, like... No, because they say, do you think our women are, are, are good-looking or something like that? Uh, do you yeah. like our women? Yeah. So like, do you want our women? Do you like our women or something? And he answered, quote-unquote, the wrong way. Hey, hey boy, you like our women? Hey, we're talking. He asked you something. Do you like our women? They seem very nice, very pretty. Next thing you know... Are you saying our women are whores? And you're being yeah. he's being chased by three people by three Gennadians. Right. And that's when he ends up back in the state. He goes to a transsexual beauty pageant. Uh, he goes yeah, he 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 goes to a transsexual beauty pageant and somebody there at the beauty pageant drops a tin foil of coke and he opens it and the illustration is is if he just found a kilo of coke. Next thing you know, what's also he, crazy is like and I've been there, and I know people who've been there, but that that's a level of depravity, too. That somebody drops something, and you're just like... I have a story for you. What? You, like, and I've been there, so I'm not saying, it like, wow, I, I would never want to... It's just, like, those things should be red flags, and they never are at the time. They, they're almost a level of resourcefulness. Like, oh, look what I was able to, to scrounge up. But no, that's fucking... That's... that's Yeah. I there was this one time I was buying there's a there's a, a movie theater in Queens mm-hmm. where there is a gaggle of drug dealers. Apparently they all pick up from the same plug and they're all there in in succession just sours 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 a hey, big man sours. So I remember this one time I was getting off the train and some guy said sours. I'm like, "All right, yes, I don't have to I don't have to look for it. Some guys just ready for me." I was like, "Yeah, let me get it. Let me get a dub." He was giving me two dimes, and in pulling the dimes out, he dropped an extra dime on the floor. Never notices it. Mm-hmm. And he's still just, you know, like doing his thing, like eye contact, looking around. Right. Me, while he's like looking around, I put my foot on the dime bag yeah. and I move it towards me ever so slowly. I give him the money, he gives me the weed. He walks this way, I'm going the opposite direction. But before he goes, I make it seem as if I'm tying, tying my shoes, yeah. grab the pot, put it in my pocket, walked away with a free dime that a drug dealer dropped. Right. So it's like everything I'm reading in this story, <laughs> it's fine. It's managing to pull back a memory I didn't even realize I had. Yeah. And that's what's so great. And and then... Um, well, Coke is for sharing now. Coke is for sharing. Coke is definitely not for for everybody. But uh, yeah, this is probably where Jonathan knew that his life was at its focal point the worst. Because... Yeah, he and he comes back from that island from AA, uh, and it turns out Sal died. Yeah, while he was away, uh, he gets a voicemail from um that high school student that he went to, and it turns out Sal passed away. And uh, also, his aunt 
happened to wait no let's so this party that he did went 36 30 about 30 hours he was doing a coke filled rager for about 30 hours a bunch of strangers that he probably doesn't even know we're all there. Well, that's the thing. When it comes to these substances, like we're talking about substance abuse and how we run towards these things, there's always strangers. There's always people that we don't know. There's always people who don't have our best interests in the room. And they'll be always be the ones smiling from ear to ear going, let me get that pool. Let me get that beer. Is it me let or me did Jonathan buy a prostitute? Because he said, this is when he finds the coke on the floor and everything. He's like, I found a queen I knew, Carmen, and we went to a hotel on East 28th Street. I think he found the prostitute. Well, a queen, isn't that a gay thing? Wasn't that what he was referencing in that? What other what other word is a, is a queen uses to describe a person? I mean, I guess. I thought it was queen was like a, a person in the gay community. I think so. But because the the way the illustration looks, there is really no. I think it's all up for grabs on this one. Yeah, he just literally wrote, "I found a queen I knew, Carmen, and we went to her hotel on East Twenty Eighth Street." My crazy drunken plan was to do a little bit of coke and sell the thing to. Oh, I think a drug, a female drug dealer. Okay. I think he found a female drug. His, his plan was to do a little bit of coke and then sell the thing with Carmen's help. I had ripped off a drug. Yeah, he's like I had ripped off a drug. Yeah, dealer. but then he did all the coke. And then four hours later, turned into 30 hours later. And then, first time in his life, he's doing heroin. Yeah. And he loves it. He describes it as a, I think it was a fire light coming out of his face. Yeah. Yeah. It was this yellow, it was the filled, his head was filled with a yellow light. Yeah. And he ends up in a bathhouse for two days. Back in the bathhouse, detoxing. Yeah, because as long as it doesn't matter how bad, much bad he does, if he shakes the etch sketch fast enough, then <laughs> it, it all gets erased. And if we all do that, that's just you know. And then comes the, to me personally, the saddest conversation in this entire book. Okay, was the one with him and his aunt, because we've all been there where our own uh, irresponsibilities come entwined with our responsibilities, yeah. and his rager, and then basically it was gone for four days. It was yeah. a two day rager. And then a two-day detox. Yeah. Within those four days, his aunt, his poor, sweet, 91-year-old aunt fell and broke her leg and arm. Yeah. And they've been trying to reach him for two days. And this gets sad is when he's talking to his aunt. Yeah, because he's already dealing with the Sal stuff. And then it's on top of it. It's, it's a bit much for him. Because he starts drinking again when Sal died. And he's like, I can't take any more deaths. Deaths, yeah. And then just... And and a bartender. And somebody's like, oh, um." Aren't you sober? And he's like, yeah. And, and they pour him up. He's like, yeah. Can you get me a drink? Aren't you on the wagon? Eh. All right. Here you go. Yeah, it goes, yeah, it goes right back. Inebri- to uh, like- Yep. Enabling man. Enabling. 100%. But his, his aunt, when his aunt was like, I'm not me anymore. He's like, well, who oh, are right. you? Yeah. He's like, I'm just not me. I'm not who I am. He's like, well, you have to be somebody. He's like, And she's just like, I just have to accept the fact that I'm not Sadie anymore. And I'm like, God damn, because... She doesn't have Alzheimer's or dementia. She knows who she is, but it's the fact that her body is failing on her and she's not prepared for her body to fail on her. Yeah. I feel like this she woman... doesn't feel like herself. I feel like this but woman this was is... never prepared for that moment. She always lived as if I could do, I could do, I can do. But I also think that it's meant to represent a mirror to John in the sense that this is a woman who at, no, at every point in her life took control. And at every point in her life made decisions and took risks and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that she that something else is now running her body, whatever it is, 
it's frustrating. Whereas Jonathan can't help but give everything else the wheel. Alcohol or coke Drugs or a woman or his best friend. Right. Or... She would be damned if she had to do any of that stuff. She's so strong-willed in that sense. Um, and he's trying to throw his life away and she's trying to get her hands back on the steering wheel. So I do think that they, they set up like a cool kind of mirror to each other. Yeah, it, it's... And then we finally get... And I think this is where the the real, the real meat and potatoes of this whole thing really come in, and that's what everybody un- knows as the phrase: an alcohol. What an alcoholic comes to is a moment of clarity. Yeah, he never once in a hundred and twenty pages had a moment of clarity. Everything was just thinking, planning, uh, unspoken preparation. Oh, I'm going to do this. That I'm line, going to do- that line's from Pulp Fiction, right? Uh, no, that line's from Kill Bill Volume Two. You sure? It was when Bill Bill was tell had to have been killed. Bill. Nah, I'm going Pulp Fiction. I where he's like, I had what alcoholics call a moment of clarity. Yeah, that's um Samuel Jackson saying that. Yes, I'm yes. having what alcoholics call for to do as, as a, a moment, moment of clarity. clarity. That's when he was telling uh Vincent that he wanted to Quit walk the, the earth. Yeah, yeah, walk yeah. the earth. Yeah. Oh, okay, like so a was bum. Be- no, like Kanan Kung Fu. You talking about a bum? bum. You going from place to place without a place to be? That's a bum. Yeah, really good stuff. <laughs> and. Yeah, this moment of clarity finally hits him, and like I, I honestly, there is no other way to interpret this than just reading just these couple of excerpts for you guys. It was the same thing with alcohol. I never stopped wanting to drink, even during the years I was sober. My ego never wanted to accept that I couldn't handle the stuff. My ego wanted to be hard drinking, a hard drinking writer, a romantic figure, but I had to see that there was nothing romantic about my drinking, and it was getting worse. I had try I had to try heroin and liked it. I had tried heroin and liked it. And I had to let down the one person who needed me, my great aunt. I wanted Sal's friendship and I had wanted the love of a girl and I wanted to be able to drink, but I couldn't have any of these things. So I told myself it gave it gave me strength. Nobody gets everything they want in life. You have to be humble. And the last words he ever said was, I will never drink again before ambiguously stopping in front of a happy hour bar. I wasn't um, tracking. When I was reading this, I wasn't tracking how close I was to the ending. I was just reading it. Oh, you were just reading it through? Yeah, I was reading it through. And when I got to here and I turned the page and he was in front of the bar, I was like, I wonder what he's going to do. And then I turned the next page and it ended. And I went, ah, that's kind of. It's an ambiguous ending, basically. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I like to. I. I personally, I guess, I don't want you, my friend, have helped me a lot in my life because if it wasn't oh, for meeting you, you and if it wasn't for your whole love of Superman and and Chris Evans, Captain America, and all of this goodness good writing, guy. if it wasn't for all of this yeah. good guy, no matter what the world does to you, you they spit in your face, you say thank you. Like, if it wasn't for that attitude, straight up, I would be here telling you right now. Oh, he definitely walked into that bar. Yeah, he was just talking shit because he was feeling all emotional that his aunt was dying, and then he's gonna it's go. It's easier to be pessimistic. It's so much easier to be pessimistic because you know why? It's hard to believe that there is good when you don't see or feel good. And and it and when you do that, when you when you do it without seeing it, you leave yourself open to get hurt, and no one wants to get hurt. No one ever wants to get um, hurt. It's also way easier to destroy than it is to build. But I find that if you find what you're meant to build in this world, you usually stop destroying shit. <laughs> yeah. So this was this is my calling. My calling is having in-depth conversations about superfluous <laughs> superfluous content um and trying to 
trying to uh, find some real logic and, you know, some real moments uh, in some of the best stories that comic books have. That's my thing. I like to build that. Because I do that once a week, I spend my week building it. I I comb over the content. I take my notes. You know, um, I'm constantly planning more content. So my ability to create um, satiates my appetite to destroy. Everybody that I've ever seen down a destructive path, I've tried to suggest them to get into something. If they want to write, write. If they want to draw, draw. If they want to sing, sing. If you used to play guitar, play guitar. Get into the things that made you you because those things were you before people told you what you who you were. Who you are when no one is watching is who you are. What right. you feel, what you think, what you say. Every decision you make when the world isn't watching is legit who you are. Yeah. If I eat egg, if I don't eat eggs in front of anybody, but I eat eggs by myself, I eat eggs. I like eggs. 100%. That's just who I am. Yeah. Just because I'm, just because I don't feel like going through that motion of ew, you eat eggs. Just because I don't feel like going through that doesn't mean when I'm alone, I don't eat eggs. That's the thing. A lot of us grew up and didn't drink alcohol, but because of the ooh, uh, ooh, lightweight, yada yada, or have sex, ooh, virgin. All those kind of negative connotations, negative stigmas, um, force us to do things that we don't necessarily dig into. That alcohol is hilarious, bro, because alcohol is legitimately not great tasting. You have to do a bunch of different things, or you have to end up getting a taste for it to actually be able to go. I never used to it. like lagers. Yeah. Um. That uh, Heineken's, Carlsberg's, yeah. uh, all those shits, some German beers. Lagers, lagers, lagers. Like to me. That shit tastes like ashes, cigarette ashes in a soda. I've right. oh, my most hated beer that I cannot ever once even twenty seven. I can't stand Heineken. Yeah, I can't do it. The first sip of Heineken legit tastes like cigarette water. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. I like ales. Yeah. I like Indian pale ales, but I had to learn that growing up. And I'm I no one ever peer pressured me to drink. I drink because I saw everybody else in my family doing it. Right, and that's a, that happens at every social gathering. My family were all big drinkers, but my father, um, you know, my father and my mother's relationship deteriorated because of my father's drinking, and he ultimately got sober, but fell off the wagon, and in falling off the wagon, that's how he died. He drank. Uh, it it caused a stroke, um, and alcohol-induced psychosis. He fell, he hit his head, and... That was the beginning of the end for that man. Did you think he thought in that one instance going back, relapsing would do all that? But we never, that's, we that's never do. 100%. We never do. No one ever says, yeah, but if I drink this, here becomes the domino effect of the death of my life. No yeah. one ever thinks of the domino effect. Well, that's what I'm talking about. So now in that instance, I have a reason, right? I have a reason to drink every day. No matter how many beers I drink a day, my dad, my actual dad is never going to come back. But for those like yourself who haven't lost one, Every day you come in here, I could be drinking. You'd be like, why are you drinking? I'm like, because my dad's dead. You wouldn't understand. And, and you know what the worst th- part that, about it is? I, w- I can't fight you. And I it, can't. And, it, and I'd, be, I'd be golden. But is that the life I want to live? Going, this one thing that happened in my life is the reason why I'm like this forever. This one moment. How I responded to this one moment is how I am now and how people will view me. Oh, yeah, He was this way and now he's this way. What happened? Well, that one thing happened. And it's like... it. I, it I feel like you see that in movies where most orphans, most people that lose their parents at a young age end up becoming the antagonist of the story. A crazy Adam Sandler's A Crazy Nights. Yeah. 
that that kid lost his parents at a young age, and then what happens? You see him as an adult, an alcoholic, living in a trailer park, hating his town, always in jail. Everybody who's who gets to that point, especially gets to a point of substance abuse, will have something to point to. This is what happened to me. I would suggest if you know somebody like that and they've done that, you know, I know this is gonna sound kind of messed up, but I I sometimes say so. No, and put you, a question mark. You I ha- say you so. Have, you have to. You and have now to. what? Now you, what are you gonna do? You okay? can't let yourself be lost. You can't. I don't, like I said. I don't know what it feels like to lose a parent, but I can tell you straight up. You can't let yourself be lost in the death of that parent because their role as a parent is a provide for you till you can provide for yourself. B support you when you when you need the most, and C die before get you, ready, you. Get you get you ready to live this life without them. Yeah, yeah. Every parent's goal should be to prepare their kid to to live the rest of their life without them. Because we we all know. I mean, me, my mother, my mother, and my father were twenty when they had me, twenty two. So I'm going to have them for a long time. But I know people that are literally 30 whose parents are 60, 70 because they, they're, they're the youngest of like 10 kids. And their parents were still having kids well into almost the time it's time to retire. So do you have to go through that idea of, damn, I'm, I'm logically only going to get 10, 20 more years with my dad because right. he was already 50, 60 when he had me. Yeah. And especially if these are the type of parents that – had to quit substance abuse and alcohol and alcoholism. Now it's how long do they really have with their son, with their kid? Hundred percent. My f- how much health? That's all in good health. That's all with nothing going wrong in between, right? <laughs> you know, no trips, no falls, no uh, accidents. It, that's hoping for the best in that in that situation. Yeah, basically. And I just I gotta just thank you one for letting me drive the driver's side on this one because <laughs> this was, was actually really nice to be able to like sit there and write up a a, a synopsis that didn't feel copy and pasted from wiki yeah, yeah, i was yeah. actually kind of glad because i feel like whatever synopsis wiki would have given us it wouldn't have been uh well, a, i could tell a, you now wiki doesn't have one. Oh no yeah there's no yeah, page there for the, no, there's no there page is for no. the alcoholic which kind of no. kind of sucks i should make my own i mean you totally can i totally yeah you can do any of that but i just i want to thank you for like i know since we started this shit since we started major issues, I've been asking you, yo, can we cover the alcoholics soon? Is there going to be room on the docket? Is there going to be room on the docket? Well, it's it's kind of ironic, but I think, you know, with this motif that we've done this month so far with the Harley Quinn stuff, we're talking about toxicity and we're talking about negative impact influences in our life oh, that definitely. look like they, they look like they're one way, but the, the long term effects of, of what these things and people do. And ultimately what we found across the board from birds of prey to Harleen to now alcoholic is that if you're not happy with yourself, you are going to ruin your own and other people's lives because you are going to look for that happiness in places you will never find them because the only place to find that happiness is in the mirror. And some people won't even look. Can't stand the sight. I think Jonathan needs a mirror of goodness. That's what I think he needs. Yeah. He just needs a mirror of goodness so he can see all of that shit that's inside him. And I also think it's all perspective as well. Oh, you know, 100%. If you're only looking in the gutter, and then uh, Travis Bickle. Travis Bickle um, is the kind of person that I'm complaining about. Because 100%. Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, if you guys have ever seen it, I won't go too spoilery, is a man who hates the way society has become and hates like... Thinks that like New York is a cesspool of just drugs and guns and criminals and monsters, Wars horrible and people, pimps. just horrible people across the board. Um, but he chooses his shift at night 
to in, see the worst. In the Bronx, like he he pit, he specifically picked the worst areas at the worst time on purpose. Yeah, and then he would try to white knight some of these females, and when things wouldn't work, he could blame them. Um, his outlook or his actions on what happened to him. And that's, I don't ever want to be that. I don't ever want to encourage that on this show <laughs> uh, for you to be like, well, you know, these are, this is the reason why I did what I had to do um, because I got slighted that one time. I got, you and me, and I'm pretty sure everybody has enough trauma to write a compelling ass origin story. Oh, hell yeah. But realize, real, look back at your life and realize that you have a choice to make that an origin story for a hero. Or the beginning of, you know, and some people will never see themselves as the villain. Some people uh, will never see themselves as the heroes, though. That's also, Me personally, that's also it, too. I had to spend a lot of my life, reali- I had to spend a lot of my time now in my mid-20s realizing it's not cool to always make, like, I, I wrote a lot of short stories in, in high school, and then in my 20s I had a laptop. I just wrote short stories just to get these words and thoughts out of my head. Like, I like I don't like words and thoughts in my head. They need to get out. So I would right. just write short stories. I, and looking back now at every short story that I ever wrote, they're literally Travis Bickles. Okay. They're literally Jonathan Ames-esque. Like, they're just characters that know they're in a shit position, but choose to stay in that shit position and complain about it. We also got to be careful of um, blanketing humanity, you know, as one thing. It's very easy to do. It's the same thing you hear with all women are blank, all men are blank. You're writing it off because it's scarier for you to take a chance again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. There's 7.8 billion people in the world. That's what I'm saying. I believe that we're all the same, but we can't all be like that. Not every girl isn't going to be like the worst relationship you ever had. But also, every girl is not going to be the best relation, like like the best relationship you ever had. I wholeheartedly believe that the next relationship I have will nowhere near be the last relationship I had. But that's the point. That's the point that it takes me now that I have to realize saying things these things out loud and having a conversation. It's like you need to realize not everybody is going to be the worst person you met, and not everybody is going to be like the best person you met. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to flip the coin that they're going to be neutral. Yeah. Some of us literally have no mo, no ulterior motives, whether good or bad. Some of us legit just go through the motions. But in the same way, some people are looking at you and hoping that you save them. That they're not going to they're not going to create the opportunities and stuff themselves. They're not going to um, try to be a self actualized person. They're going to find you in the middle of their haze, think that you're the shepherd. And when you can't get them to where they got to go, well, why did you feel it? Why did you feel her or him or, you know, and that's not your responsibility. You weren't born to do something, to do those things. Autoerotic assimilation, one of my favorite Rick, Rick and Morty episodes, proves this, where Unity, who was sober, clean, and actually doing good for a planet, loses herself in Rick. Rick comes back, and now it's party girl Unity again. Now it's time to do drugs and drink and and get the whole town, the whole planet sick. And when she leaves him, in one of the funniest ways anybody could be left, just a bunch of notes. But when she leaves him, she says it. I, I lost myself within you, and you find yourself within me. Yeah. But that's toxicity, right? So we can't do this. I can't allow. I can't let me be the reason that you're happy, and I can't let you be the reason why I get to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And then you see Rick 
tries to freaking kill himself because of it. Yes. That's that that's just basically life, man. That's that episode was so real because it's life. You can't allow the be all end all happiness to be one person. Or that one drug. Or that one drink. You can't There's just so many experiences and you don't know. Get out of the hole that you're in. Get out of the the maybe the group of people that you're in. I'm not saying that they're they're the cause of that, but I'm saying change what you're looking no, literally, literally change, change what your you're looking at. Yeah. Change what you're looking at. Because it's real easy to get comfortable. That's one of the biggest things in life is the, that level of comfortability and what we're willing to deal with and accept, right? We only accept the love we, we want to. So he stood on and he stood by because he thought that was the best he could get in his entire life. And that To the just, point he didn't even want to meet anybody else. The whole that's what I'm saying, book, yeah. he didn't, he was in. He dated one girl for a little while and thought she felt, he felt bad about it. He was like, I kept thinking of. Uh, in Seattle, and whatever. when she found the strand of hair, she flips out and like like, and he even says like, "Oh my god, I actually had her! I had but her!" But the thing I is, up. who the hell is she to flip out? But Thank he don't, you. but he don't but put he his foot down. Yeah, he didn't say, so, "Well, you left me. Like we're not together." No, it's oh, here's an here's just another excuse for me to leave your life again. That's what she did. Yeah, she used as an excuse to leave the life again. Yeah, and whatever happens to him, yeah, that's exactly. She it's the the Jeff uh, storming out. Finding a reason to storm out, whatever. Yeah. I'm so mad. I'm just going to. No, he's using this as an excuse to just act like he's mad so he can walk away. And that's all she did. She she needed a reason to escape, and she escaped. And so it was what it was. Um. So I have found some uh things here that might be helpful. First of all. I want to say that in case you are dealing with uh, alcohol addiction, oh, yes, you, this is you a very find yourself uh, de- dealing with alcohol addiction, there's many places you can go. But I know a 24-7 free and private call service uh, made by Delphi's Behavioral Health Group. And so you can call 954-866-9459. 954-866-9459. And you can receive a free addiction evaluation and free insurance check. Find out within minutes if you can get treatment at zero cost and start treatment on under 24 hours. It's 100% confidential, free insurance verification. They accept most insurance policies uh, and they come up with a personalized treatment built for you. Um, there's also faith-based treatment available in case you want to get closer to your particular God as you uh, face the demons of alcoholism. But I also wanted to say... Definitely put those in the show notes for everybody. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put that number there. But I was looking through, because I was trying to look at the... Because we all know the emotional side of alcoholism. And I was trying to, I guess, go through more of the nitty-gritty black and white stuff. So I found out that these are some of the symptoms of withdrawal. Um, anxiety, depression, irritability, fatigue, tremors, palpitations, clammy skin, dilated pupils, sweating, headaches, difficulty sleeping, vomiting, seizures, all things that you would medicate. And so (laughs) if you start to feel these withdrawals, people just go back to drinking. Because what's the point of feeling any of this stuff? That's what every drug addict does. Every drug addict that wants to get better can't get over the hump of withdrawals. Um, I also have like the the medical journal. So this is how you find out uh, if you have a maladaptive pattern of alcohol consumption. So alcohol use disorder. Um, you have to have two of any two of the of the of the next things I'm gonna announce. Um, consuming more alcohol than intended, being unable to cut down. Alcohol takes up a lot of time. Cravings uh, to use alcohol. Alcohol use affects responsibilities. Using alcohol even if it causes interpersonal problems. 
giving up important activities for alcohol, using alcohol in physically dangerous situations, using alcohol even if it worsens a problem, Damn. becoming tolerant to alcohol, feeling withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. So if you if you ha- are if you have like two or three of those, you consider a, a, you you're mildly um you mildly you have a mild case of alcohol use disorder. Yeah, so that, four to five yeah. moderate, six plus severe. <laughs> so, so basically, I have the I ha- I legit have the crave to drink every day, even though I fight that temptation. Don't drink. I still every day want a beer, and I use. I guess I drink even though it has a problem with certain relationships I have. Yeah. So I guess I have a little bit of mild need of alcohol. But I would never, ever, ever, ever say that I'm an addict to anything. Right. Except for... Is that the ego? Except cigarettes. Is that the ego? It is the ego. (laughs) It is the... I cannot... I can't personally believe that I let my use of things get to the point where at 27, I could never touch it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Hard drugs, yes. You know what? That stuff you and you can it. also go out of you can go live your life without hard drugs and never. No, no, I've, never I haven't not, done. Yeah. I haven't done drugs in a in a long time, right. and I don't miss it. I don't crave it. I don't care for it. If it was in front of me at this point, I probably would say, "Nah, I'm good." Yeah, but with drinking, I always have the crave to drink, and right. I've I've oh, I've had the crave to drink since I was young. Right. I don't do it. I don't because I feel like I'm stronger than that. I guess you could say it's the ego. But the only thing I ever openly admitted to being addicted to is cigarettes. Yeah. That is legit an actual severe – like everything that you just named for alcohol, yeah, that's all. You add – you replace alcohol for cigarettes? Well, you already, we already know about the increasingly addictive nature of nicotine, and that's been, you know, talked about forever. Yeah, I think they gave like um a rat – I think the experiment for getting rats addicted to see how addicting like cocaine was, they would give them like uh, water bottles of filled with coke, yeah. and they would all be like – uh, like addicted to it, and they some of them would die when they're when they would drink the water that had that didn't have coke in it. Then they talk. They talked about. They that talked the about in the alcoholic. In the, yeah, in, in the book, it's um, sickness. But yeah, this is definitely a very revealing, very uh, transparent, very honest, if not tragic, view of a person dealing with alcoholism. Um, like I said, I've lost somebody due to alcoholism. Um, oh, I think we've all lost somebody that way. I mean, you, yeah, but. But, you know, like, I think it affects all of us, and we really need to understand our relationship with it. I think it's important to sit and think, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what you, uh, no matter what your relationship with alcohol is, I think it's, it's important to evaluate it, realize why you feel the way you feel about it, and to figure out if it's healthy or not. You know, we can, this world is incredibly painful, and we do all myriad of things to kind of cloak that pain, but some of the, some of the, the best drugs, honestly, is real love. A honest conversation, a real hug, a laugh, a, a, like literally laugh, just literally laughing and feeling safe. <laughs> like those things trump any high, man, uh, uh, for real. And, you know, no, we're trying yeah. to we're trying to bring the goods here to give you guys a little bit of good every day or at least every week. Um, And so you guys just keep doing what you were doing as far as that. You got anything else to say on the alcoholic? I, I thank you for letting me you take did. the drive. <laughs> All I really have to say really is guys this this isn't uh we're not glamorizing here this no. isn't there is not one point of this conversation that we're having fun talking about it. Right. Some of this stuff is actually very personal that we're sharing with the fans cuz we love you guys enough to let you have this in-depth look at who we are and how we got to the places we got. And to show that we're human and that we're a very human. You know, we want to we want to believe that we're superheroes but you know 
even Superman is, in a sense, human-looking. Yeah, well, so, even Superman needs to be, I always say, he needs to have his cape tugged and reminded that he's Superman. There's nothing more human than emotion. Yeah. At the end and of the fault, day. And fault. <laughs> and so if you can ever express your, you've, your, that you've done something wrong and that you're sorry, there's nothing more human than that because we've all felt that. We've all been there. Of course. But you humans keep listening to every episode of the Major Issues Podcast, which is available at comicbookclick.com. Literally the one stop for everything that we do as part of Comic Book Click. We got a brand new article up there. Our boy James Dallas then wrote an article for the uh, for 10 Oscar winners. You didn't know. Played some iconic comic book characters. You may have known they played them. Maybe you didn't know they were Oscar winner. Maybe that, you didn't even know the movie was a comic book movie like me. I didn't even know Rose of Perdition was a real comic I book movie. I know I'm, that was I'm, a comic bur- movie. I'm burying a lead here, but that, yeah, go check it out. You'll see some pretty, pretty cool things. Uh, so we got articles going up there. Uh, the Major Issues podcast is there every single week. Um, so you can find the Major Issues podcast at comicbookclick.com. Um, but wherever podcasts are found, that's Podbean, Stitcher, the Podcast Addict, the Apple Podcast app. Um, Oh, this is my Spotify. favorite song right here. Spotify. <laughs> you got me messing up. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, wherever podcasts are found. I'm telling you, literally, look it up. I think we're on SoundCloud, maybe. Go to check. The Major Issues Podcast. The easiest way to find us, go to Google, Major Issues Podcast, and we'll be the first ones to pop up, I promise you, because we are always delivering the latest and greatest thing to come to comic books and comic book media. But, like something like that, this we just did, Incredibly Vulnerable, we've opened ourselves up to you guys. Uh, we want to open the door to so you guys can reciprocate. You guys can always send feedback about anything that we do here at facebook.com slash comic book click, Instagram, well, yeah, Instagram at comic book click, or use the hashtag comic book click to talk about the newest, hottest, latest, and greatest things to come to comic book and comic book media. We're also at major issues CBC on the Twitter machine, but yeah, we're constantly looking for um, feedback from you guys and wh- what you guys are going through and how you guys are digging the content here. Um, I'm saying all that to say that I recently threw up in uh, on our Facebook. I realized that the the um, the traffic for our Birds of Prey episode isn't as big as as a, a movie episode, and even um, Hellboy did better. Really? Yeah. And so I I can only think that what happened was people just didn't see the movie. In general, not that they saw and they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't see it, so there's no reason to talk about something you didn't see. So I went in and I was I started to ask people like, why, you know, why haven't you seen Harley Quinn? And I've heard like because this version of DCEU is fizzling out. If it's not a member of the Justice League, I'm not interested. Uh, not the best movie, but and so I had no interest in seeing it. I had no interest, and I had even less after the promotional material. So I, you know, like I'm, I'm gauging the audience. I'm testing the waters. I'm finding out from you guys what you guys are liking and don't. And it's, it's incredibly rewarding because we're coming a family here. We're coming a little click. I've been to the future where we do become the latest and greatest thing to come to comic books and comic book media. Can't tell you how we do it. So jump on the bad wagon while there's still room left. Um, but last thing I'll ask. Is the same way that we have told you guys how great you guys, a job you guys have been doing, liking the Facebook, sharing the Instagram posts, all that kind of stuff. One more thing, rate and review us on iTunes. It's the quickest way for us to grow as podcasters and learn what you like and what you don't like about the Major Issues podcast. And we can change accordingly, grow, evolve, adapt, right? It's all those things. Yep. And I can't wait to do it with all of you guys. I honestly can't. Uh... But my name is George Serrano, a.k.a. The Don. I am Dan, the comic book man. And remember, regardless of the trauma that you face in your life, regardless of who you think you 
think you are when you look in the mirror, regardless of everything that has come up until this point to make you who you are. Remember that you are loved. Remember that you are a person that deserves to be loved and deserves to be happy. And remember that as long as you're part of this clique, you, yes, you are worthy. Thank you.